0: There will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Please be seated. Order, honourable members, order, in the interest of safety, order honourable members, in the interest of safety, honourable members, the House has started its proceedings. It's now time to end your bilateral discussions and take up your seats. Please keep on your masks and restrict your movement as far as possible and stay in your designated area and you are requested to sign the attendance slips that has been provided on the desks in front of you the only item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the ministers in cluster five economics there are four supplementary questions on each question and parties have already given an indication of which questions their members wish to pose a supplementary question. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by the presiding officer. In allocating opportunities for supplementary questions, the principle of fairness, amongst others, has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through the virtual platform is unable to do so due to technical difficulties, the party who are on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all supplementary questions have been answered by the Executive, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. The first question has been asked by the Honourable Manku to the Minister of Transport. I've been informed that the Minister will be answering questions here from the Chamber. The Honourable Minister.
1: The Honourable Minister of Transport.
0: May I request the Chief whip of the Majority Party to ascertain the movements of the Minister because this session was set down specifically for questions to Ministers and we expect Ministers to be present when they indicate that they will be in the chamber. We cannot delay the business of the house due to the unavailability of
2: a minister who's supposed to be here. I don't think the shadow minister is prepared
0: to answer the question. <laughs> well prepared, uh... <laughs> Members, I suggest we proceed to the next question. We proceed to the next question, and that is the question that has been asked by the Honourable Kachalia to the Minister of Public Enterprises. Is the Minister of Public Enterprises on the platform?
3: Yes, I am, Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Minister, you may proceed. Good afternoon, Chair. Good afternoon to Honourable Members. The Government has not consider declaring a state of uh, disaster to respond to the energy challenges that we are facing in the Republic of South Africa. In terms of the Disaster Management Act, for the information of Honorable Pacharya, a disaster means a progressive or sudden widespread or localized natural or human-caused occurrence which causes or threatens to cause death, injury, or disease. Uh, secondly, damage to property or the environment and infrastructure, thirdly, disruption of the life of the community. Uh, and the magnitude of that exceeds the ability of those affected by the disaster to cope with its effects using their, only their resources. The facts, uh, Chairperson, that have emerged in the most recent report uh, from the Commission chaired by the Chief Justice, uh, Honorable Zondo, released on Friday, 29 April 2022, states that, and I quote, the evidence proved the scheme by the Guptas to capture Eskom, install the Guptas' selected officials in strategic positions within Eskom as members of the board and committees of the board and the executives, and then divert Eskom's assets to the Guptas' financial advantage, close quotations. Clearly, the evidence before the Commission further, and I quote, revealed quite clearly that part of the reason why some of the state-owned companies have performed as badly badly as they have, or why some rely on government bailouts year in and year out, is the caliber of some of the people who are appointed as members of the boards of these companies and who are their chief executive officers or CFOs. State-capture chairperson contributed to the energy crisis as the Commission uh, evidence revealed. For example, it says Eskom concluded a coal supply agreement with together for the supply of a total quantity of 13, almost 14 million tons, and the agreed contract price was 3.7 billion rands, uh, commencing 1st April 2015 to the 30th of September 2025. Executives and the boards of Eskom at that time we're tirelessly working to benefit the Guptas by providing long-term contracts, increasing the scope and budget while completely flouting public procurement prescripts. And there was evidence before the Commission uh, as to how this was done by various officials and where no due diligence was actually undertaken. Notwithstanding this, these are the various initiatives that government has been taking for the last few years in order to restore energy security in South Africa. Since March 2018, government and the ESCOM board and management has been working diligently to restore good governance, operational stability, and financial sustainability in ESCOM. Secondly, this is in addition to the restructuring of ESCOM to meet the requirements of the new trends in the energy market. Thirdly, the IRP 2019 was developed by government to provide a medium-term perspective on the energy transition that South Africa will have to undergo. Fourth, Eskimo State made various attempts to overcome the lack of maintenance in the past uh, with uh, various philosophies and approaches in respect of maintenance, some of which is working and admittedly some of which is not. Fifth, restoring uh, engineering and operational discipline which disappeared during the state capture period. Acting against corruption, for example, against ABB and uh, retrieving 1.5 billion rands, McKinsey a billion rands, trillion, uh, and a 3 billion rand claim against former board and management uh, of ESCOM as well. Seven, changing procurement practices, uh, which is still work in progress. Eight, completing the Medupi and Kusile build projects, notwithstanding the various difficulties that uh, confronted by ESCOM. Preparing for the new renewables and the just energy transition, amongst some of the things that Eskom is undertaking, Chairperson. There should therefore be a distinction made between a state of disaster just for dramatic effect as compared to a power system emergency, which falls within the purview of the system's operator and based on criteria determined by this operator. At all times, the main imperative is to avoid the total collapse of the grid as has occurred in California and more recently in Texas of the United States. There are therefore internal plans to manage the power system that would allow the systems operator to implement up to stage 8 load shedding in order to protect the grid from total collapse. Eskom manages the stability of the grid with load shedding as a key mechanism to mitigate against the grid collapse. At this stage, there is absolutely no requirement for Eskimo government to declare a certain an emergency. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. I will now recognize the Honourable Kachalia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
4: While President Ramaphosa vows to do everything to make load shedding a thing of the past, and indeed once announced that load shedding had ended, we are currently being hit as I speak with stage 2 low shedding, yeah. an unacceptable reality of some 15 years duration under the ANC, highlighting this government's chronic inability to keep the lights on. Experts the world over agree that the staff complement at ESCOM is hugely bloated, and that tens of billions of billions of rands in savings from the retrenchment of dead wood cadres are patently needed for the much-needed maintenance and reinvestment. Moreover, the CEO has recently identified incompetent plant operators as a major factor contributing to the current mess. In view of this, will the Minister prioritize the future of our electricity security as his job demands before securing the votes and the placation of unions who in any case caused the President to unceremoniously flee their ire in a police miala? And will, and will he take the necessary steps to free the much-needed financial resources by not blocking these retrenchments, as well as allowing fit-for-purpose employees to fill the much-needed gaps.
3: The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson, and thank you to Honourable Kachalia. Clearly, it is our priority as government, and certainly within my portfolio, but more importantly of the board and of the management, to ensure that we prioritise stability within the energy system, but the reality, Chairperson, as has been repeated on many occasions, is that ESCOM requires a space of about four to 6,000 megawatts of additional energy so that the necessary maintenance can be undertaken. It's also a well-established fact, Chairperson, and this is also in the report of the Zonder Commission, that there has been neglect on the maintenance side for many years, particularly during the state capture period. Uh, in order to to ensure that inverted commas, the lights, stay on. That is the legacy that we have to now overcome. As far as the staff is concerned, there's no doubt that they are uh, there is a possibility for trimming the, the staff numbers. But unlike Mr. Kachalia, we have a social responsibility as government, not just to placate unions, but to look after workers and look after their families and look after the well-being of communities as well. And far more important than putting them out on the streets when we have the high level of unemployment that we do is to attempt to retrain them, uh, to reorientate them towards the new developments as far as renewable energy uh, investments that will be taking place all over the country, but particularly in the near future on Eskom land as as well. So there will be some stability in the next uh, year or or more. Uh, But what we require is this 4,000 to 6,000 megawatts of energy, uh, which needs to be brought online. And that is certainly our priority. Thank you. The next follow-up question will be asked by the Honourable Swart.
2: Thank you, House Chair. Arising from your response, Honourable Minister, and in addition to your references to the Sonder Commission, the ACDP welcomes your comments of the weekend that all sections of society should understand the negative and devastating impact that corruption and state capture has had in institutions, and that the real corruptors must be held to account. More importantly, Honourable Minister, you said those who have benefited in one way or another must stop being treated as little heroes because they are not. When the ACDP served with the Honourable Minister and other MPs on the ESCOM parliamentary inquiry, we had no idea of the exact extent of the looting and corruption. Mm-hmm which the Zonder Commission has now quantified at a staggering $14.7 billion. Would you agree, Honourable Minister, that had this $14.7 billion not been stolen, it would have gone a long way to fund much-needed maintenance and stabilise the past supplied ESCOM? And if so, that further and more urgent steps should be taken by law enforcement agencies to recover these funds, wherever they may be, and ensure that those implicated are put behind bars. I thank you.
3: The Honourable Minister. Uh, Chairperson, I would certainly agree with Honourable Swart that uh, had that, and I'm sure the amount of money if we do a little bit more homework might even be more than that, Honourable Swart, um, uh, who uh, played a very important role, Chairperson, together uh, with a number of members of the opposition and the ANC uh, during the parliamentary inquiry into ESKIM in 2017. But uh, he's absolutely right, uh, Honorable Swart, that that money could be used to uh, do more maintenance, to stabilize uh, the energy situation in South Africa. And one ton, but absolutely agree with him that the time has now come for the law enforcement agencies to sh- not only just show their teeth, but use their teeth and ensure that that which the public of South Africa wants which is these affected and listed people in these reports to now account for the manner in which they've done a disservice to this country and find themselves where appropriate in orange overhauls as well, overalls as well. On the question of funds being retrieved, that's also an absolute priority as well. And Eskim, uh, through its board, has taken an important initiative, as I said earlier on, in lodging a claim of over 3 billion rounds against former directors, uh, on the Eskom board during the state capture period and the management of that time as as well. So there's absolutely no doubt that uh, the state capture activities had a massive and negative effect uh, on Eskom itself and therefore on our country and its economy. Uh, but the, the key now as we work together during the 2017 period is for us to put our collective efforts together and make sure that a vital institution like ESCOM is uh, put on its feet again, whilst at the same time inviting private sector investment into the renewable industry. Thank you. The next follow-up question is to be asked by the
5: Honourable Vessels. Thank you, Honourable Chairperson. (coughs) Chair, would the Minister agree that the crisis facing ESCOM is not limited to inefficient generation of electricity, but also goes to the incapacity of the electricity network, and that a lot of energy is lost. Electricity that is produced are lost because of incapacity of the grid of the network. And will the minister then make an effort to recruit people that were in service of ESCOM that do have the expertise to assist at this stage that were retrenched because of various reasons, will he make an effort to recruit those people with the necessary skills to assist us in this crisis?
3: I thank you. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Chairperson. Honourable Vessels, uh, I agree that uh, the generation side of the ESCOM business has a huge challenge. But where I beg to disagree with you is that uh, we have an incapacity in the transmission grid. The transmission grid in South Africa, which is now under the control of a separate entity, Transmission Company uh, South Africa, as part of the restructuring of ESCOM, is one of the best-run grids in the world and uh, operates on world-class standards the loss of electricity that you speak of is a normal loss uh, that one would see and I'm no electrical engineer but this is what I have learned uh, as uh, electricity is generated at a particular uh, wattage and and uh, it then gets reduced over uh, long kilometers of these lines to the appropriate uh, voltage that is uh, utilized in one's home or in a particular business so the grid itself And the systems operator that I referred to in my earlier response are operating on world-class standards, and we have no fear. Where where we do need to give further attention is the extension of that grid. And you've heard in the public domain that the CEO of Eskom speaks of about 100 to 150 billion rand investment that needs to take place in extending the grid, particularly in parts of the Eastern Cape, Northern Cape, and some other parts of the country where renewable in, uh, energy plants are being uh, installed and invested in. And that is a work in progress in terms of planning in that particular area. As far as recruitment of uh, previous uh, employees who have the necessary experience, some of that is happening already. And uh, the ESCOM management and board is not shy uh, in that particular regard. Thank you. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable
6: Heron. Thank you, House Chair, and thank you, Minister. Um, Minister, I think we can agree that the, um, the, we all understand what brought us to the, to, to the position that we're in with regards to um, the Eskom crisis, so we can leave the blame game behind us and let the law enforcement authorities deal with it. But I think, Minister, what South Africans need right now is a stable electricity supply. And the question really is, how do we get that immediately or as soon as possible? Do we have the expertise in South Africa and in ESCOM in order to stabilize the electricity supply and to, um, to give South Africans what they need now and let the law enforcement
3: authorities deal with what hollowed out ESCOM in the past? Thank you.
0: The Honorable Minister.
3: Chairperson, I think Honorable Heron must distinguish with great respect between what he calls blame game and understanding the true root causes of some of the challenges and problems that we face today. I think dismissing it as blame game uh, doesn't actually help. It's like going to a doctor and the doctor tells you that the cause of your symptoms is X and you say, don't worry about the causes, just treat my symptoms. And that's a sure way of ending up on the wrong wrong side of life. As far as uh, skills in in Eskimo is concerned, can. As the basic skills in, in uh, generation, distribution, and transmission, but it can certainly do with a lot uh, uh, more skills in, the, in relation to generation uh, expertise and experience as well to train the younger generation of uh, engineers and operators that are within the plant at this point in time. And that is a matter that the CEO uh, is giving attention to at the moment. And there's no easy and quick fix in terms of getting a stable electricity supply. But there is uh, a lot of uh, initiatives that the Minerals and Energy Department <coughs> which is taking uh, in, order to, in order to ensure that uh, windows uh, 5 and 6 are became, beginning to become operational. Uh, and attention is being given to other parts of the IRP-19 with a view to quicker implementation in that regard as well. Uh, Attention is similarly being given to the utilization of gas as a step-down possibility as we keep in line with the commitments that we've made at the various COP conferences that have been taking place around the world. So, yes, there's uh, a sufficient foundation to build on, uh, but at the same time, there are new things and additional things that need to be done. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable members, may I just request those members who are on the virtual platform to keep their mics muted. It causes a disturbance to the Honourable Minister that's responding and also to the uh, members who are in the House. Um, I will now return to the first question on the question paper. Question number 246 that has been asked by the Honourable manku to the Honourable Minister of Transport. Welcome, Honourable Minister. <laughs> uh,
1: thank you very much, uh, Honourable, on, on, <coughs> Honourable Members. Um, As a policy department, the Department of Transport is working with all key stakeholders with an interest in the development of an efficient and competitive rail system in the country to bring about a rail renaissance. This will position rail as a backbone of our transport system, both for passenger and freight. Historically, there has been significant underinvestment in rail infrastructure, negatively affecting the competitiveness of rail. The White Paper on National Rail Policy, recently approved by Cabinet, acknowledges the need for investment in rail infrastructure, building on existing programs in respect of both freight and passenger rail. The large-scale vandalism and theft of rail infrastructure has undermined efforts to develop rail infrastructure, but efforts are underway to replace and rehabilitate the damaged uh, infrastructure while pursuing measures in place to secure the new investment. The work to develop rail infrastructure is ongoing and will be given impetus by the implementation of the new policy trajectory articulated in the White Paper on National Rail Policy. Central to this is the establishment of a central rail planning unit within the Department of Transport to work on medium-term and long-term planning for the implementation of a number of rail intervention strategies going forward. This will be a specialized unit with expertise to conduct research and inform rail infrastructure development choices, among others, both for passenger and freight. The policy requires the finalization and the publication of the National Rail Master Plan to guide the country in terms of rail development priorities, identifying strategic corridors required for investments and types of rail infrastructure development, timelines and costs. Rail infrastructure development will be coordinated from the centre and implemented simultaneously across the country in strategic corridors as identified in the National Rail Master Plan. However, the current efforts will continue and will be integrated into the
0: Master Plan. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question goes to the Honourable Manku.
7: Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair. Minister, key to the policy you've just alluded to of moving freight from road to rail are two entities, PRASA and uh, Transnet. How do you plan to cooperate or make cooperation between PRASA and Transnet? To make sure that the dwindling numbers of uh, freight being moved by rail now are increased? And secondly, what is your plan to remove all those bottlenecks that are causing this decline of freight movement on, on trains?
0: Thank you, Honorable Chair. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much, uh,
1: Honourable Member. The, the long distance freight and passenger transport is primarily uh, on the Transnet freight rail network. PRASA uh, uh, is in discussion with Transnet on catering for passengers. Uh, in their current access approach to market to invite third party operators where access is uh, required to freight to go through prasa network the agreement between the two entities will be based on giving a priority to passenger traffic currently prasa and transnet uh, collaborate between our train operations uh, units.
0: The next supplementary question is to be asked by the honourable Noluchungu. Are you taking the follow-up question on behalf of the member?
8: I am. I am. Uh, just give me one second, check. I'm busy talking. <laughs> i know what i'm going to say uh minister Jola. uh in 2006 the railway safety regulator released a report that painted a concerning picture about the safety of our railway infrastructure again in its 2017-18 report the regulator reported a 21 percent increase in theft of assets and malicious damage to property railway transport doesn't work to its capacity because of theft of railway infrastructure amongst other things Has the government considered reintroducing railway police to safeguard railway infrastructure and ensure that this form of transport is utilized optimally to ease the pressure from the roads? Thank you.
0: Honorable Minister.
1: Uh, uh, Thank you, uh, honorable member. Uh, The issue of railway police within um, the rail passenger network it's not a, a decision that uh, we are not considering. Uh, the main question is the, the question of resources. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you uh, because I don't want to say something here and then tomorrow when you go for your oversight, you don't see railway police. You say, I came to parliament, I promised you something that we can't implement. We do have 2,000 plus railway police deployed in the network from SAPS. And we have inherited that from the the past. And from the South African Police Service, we do have that. It is complemented by security companies, um, which uh, have been deployed as we recover different corridors in the country. So to answer your question, If you go now, for instance, in Mabupani and other corridors that we are reviving, you're asking where? I am telling you one answer is Mabupani. You go to Mabupani. No, everywhere else where we are reviving the rail network, passenger rail network, the strategy is we deploy security. So that is happening everywhere in the country. So that is what uh, I wish to answer to you. But you will see railway police, which is 2,000 plus, not deployed within the railway network in terms of passengers and all of that, which is quite inadequate and not enough. South Africa still needs uh, boots on the ground in terms of the police and so on, and uh, it will not be uh, uh, in a position today to deploy extra police within the rail network. So we are complementing that with security companies and we are doing very well at the present moment with regard to that.
0: The next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honorable meshu
9: Thank you, Chairperson. Government has for years Allowed people to invade land and build shacks whenever they wanted. They did not make state land available to needy people who needed a place they would call home. It was therefore not surprising when some invaders started building along railway lines, as has happened in Seattle, informal settlement in Langa. By so doing, these families have prevented metro rail from reopening the Central Line beyond Langa. My question to the Honorable Minister is, why is government not complying with the Western Cape High Court order that rules that families in the Siatala informal settlement should be moved and housed on land that has basic services, as that will enable the free movement of goods and people on the rail, particularly workers who need safer and cheaper mode of transport. And we all know that trains are always cheaper. So, why is the uh, court order not implemented so that that route can be open for passengers? Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh,
1: thank you, uh, Honorable Mishwe. As we are speaking now, we are working with the government of the Western Cape. We are working with the Cape Town Municipality, Human Settlement, under Human Settlement HDA. Uh, We are also working with the Department of Public Works. Um, The Department of Human Settlement have secured a piece of land where we'll be moving the people to comply with the court order. Um, What we're doing as the passenger rail, particularly Prasa, is to continue with our work. If you go to Langa now, you will see the work that we're doing Uh, to secure the rail network Uh, whilst people are waiting to be resettled uh, we believe that we must continue with our work uh, to uh, secure the network and I can assure you that um, you are going to see the line open uh, very soon uh, for trains uh, whilst people are, are resettled to a new piece of land in the Western Cape Myself and the Minister of Human Settlement to a meeting tomorrow to finalize the preparations of uh, the land that has been secured by government. So we are working tirelessly, we have been working to move people from rail tracks in the Western Cape. And the main issue, as you will know, uh, which is an obstacle, an impediment in the Western Cape is uh, securing uh, land parcels, which has been a bigger challenge here. The Department of Public Works did give us a piece of land. But when we went to occupy the land, we were also met with another court interdict, particularly from the owners of land. So the question of land in the Western Cape, it's a question of ownership. Those who own the land versus those who don't have. And then uh, the people who own the land are those who are very rich and wealthy and uh, they will not easily agree to give us the land uh, to to be occupied by people who will be moving from the tracks in Langa in the areas we have actually actually, uh, mentioned. But finally we we, we do have a piece of land, we are going to move people, even before we do that the work of getting the trains running in the central line has started. And you are going to see the trains running, the the blue trains, you're going to see them back in the central line. And I'm very excited about that. So uh, come with me as we uh, we embark on this journey. So I was with your people in the Western Cape, working with them, the DA government, working with your municipality who are very cooperative. Working with me to move people so don't come in parliament and how and uh, because uh, honorable minister your time is now expired. those parties to move to move people on
0: the tracks of land thank you very much thank you the last supplementary question
10: will be asked by the honorable Sheikh imam minister first of all thank you the matter at our Tambo airport is resolved and all 105 quarters are now working unhindered at the airport thank you very much minister This rail network, if implemented, will go a long way. First of all, less damage to the roads, less accidents, less fatalities. So I think there are positive sides. However, my question is, have you done an assessment on what is then going to happen in terms of job losses and things with the long distance buses and the trucking industry and things? Have you done some kind of assessment on that to see that we don't? Lose jobs, although I know jobs are going to be created because they're going to run from depot to depot and that kind of thing. Thank you, Minister. We do
1: have the study of the World Bank in relation to the rail uh, situation, particularly the passenger rail in the in South Africa, and that uh, the current model, in terms of financing sustainability of the rail network in South Africa, is not sustainable. And that is why in our national white paper policy, we're talking about private sector investment, not privatization. And uh, what it will mean is that we are now going to attract private money to come and support our work in the passenger rail network. And the details of that uh, will be unpacked when uh, we uh, launch the national uh, white paper rail policy uh, for South Africa is the first that uh, we're, we're, we're launching, which have been approved by cabinet. We're also going to look into the branch lines, which are now not being utilized. Uh, if you talk about uh, areas like Guzarelo and Tabanchu in the free states and many other areas even in KwaZulu-Natal, Mafeking, and uh, Johannesburg, all those branch lines, as you look at them now, they are not being utilised. So we are going to work with the private sector to come to the part so that we activate those branch lines for both the purposes of passenger rail network and freight uh, in implementing and bringing to realisation the policy of moving from road to rail. So the white paper in itself gives us uh, enough uh, space to realize the implementation of this policy. And when we launch it, like we said, we are going to have a unit that is going to see to its implementation. We have costed it. And most of the money is not going to come from public purse. It will be through working together with the private sector. The policy itself opened up a space for everybody to come to the party. Mm -hmm. So the future is bright uh, from where we are now. Uh, in terms of the 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 rage, uh, situation of South Africa um, and I think uh, we, will, we will see also as we speak to different stakeholders in terms of the policy already the, the 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 appetite of them coming forward to participate practically in the implementation of the policy it is quite encouraging you are right there are job losses, including with regard to Otopex at Brasa. And uh, what we have said is that Otopex, it is Otopex, it has got lucrative ro- routes uh, in terms of transporting people and all of that. But at the end of the day, it is, uh, it is a liability.
0: Honorable Minister, ask. your so time has now expired.
1: How we want to deal with uh, its sustenance and preserving jobs. Thank you, Chair.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, we will now proceed to question 291 that has been asked by the Honourable Maotwe to the Minister of Public Enterprises. The Honourable Minister.
3: Thank you, Chairperson. The project that Honourable Maotwe refers to aims to develop and support the strategy of moving towards managed third-party access, as Minister Mbalula has just been uh, referring to, on sections of Transnet's network, driving freight density, improving profitability on the network, and supporting the migration of traffic from road to rail. Transnet is therefore conducting a phased project regarding the sale of slots to enable private operators access to sections of the Transnet rail network. In the case of slot sales, the phased project is limited to the sale of operational access privileges in the form of slots with no impact on the rail network ownership. Transnet Freight Rail will continue to be the network owner and the network manager, in addition to being the dominant operator with what are called grandfather rights to the network. In all cases of private sector participation, Transnet retains the ownership of the asset. Transnet has also implemented a strategy for new capacity development and efficiency improvement. The strategy encompasses several private sector participation initiatives in concert with Transnet's own direct investment. This strategy involves private partners supporting capacity development and operational efficiency enhancement through the crowding in of investment in ring-fenced assets, partner-driven investment in equipment, tools, techniques, and access to international trade and commercial networks. Private sector participation processes currently underway include amongst others, the Durban Container Terminal Pier 2, where a request for quotation has been issued. Secondly, the NUCA Container Terminal, where also a request for quotation has been issued. And thirdly, the nuka and Richards Bay liquefied natural gas import terminals. In both instances, requests for information phases have been completed. Transnet is also developing and pursuing a program of branch line con- concessions uh, in line with what Minister Mbalula has just said. This process is at various stages of development and implementation. The service that Transnet is selling is access to the network rather than a complete rail service. A detailed registration, capacitation, validation, and certification process has been developed to manage the process of private sector operators being allowed to bid for slots as was initiated on the 1st of April, 2022. It is important to note that the sale of slots is not a privatization process, but is a service offering from Transnet albeit utilising a different operating model. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The Honourable Mawatwe.
11: Thank you very much, House Chair. Minister, you've just um, said that part of the tracks might be out for concession. And that on its own is privatisation. I don't know how do you not understand that term. Now, it is very clear that the ruling party has no interest or appetite to lead industrialization, despite the high levels of unemployment, where more than 7.9 million people who are willing to work, willing to relocate anywhere in the country, and willing to learn in new industries cannot find work. More than 3.8 million have given up on finding work, and even more people are not economically active. We know that there is a deliberate program to collapse state-owned enterprises so that they can be sold to cronies for a fraction of their true value. They are deliberately destroying Transnet so that they can privatize it. Now, we want you, Minister, today to confirm whether or not you are saying that there are no plans to privatize any of the Transnet sections in the medium to long term.
3: I thank you, Chair.
0: Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Minister.
3: Thank you, Chairperson. Privatization is a process where, if you have 30,000 kilometers of rail in South Africa, you say, I am putting every kilometer of rail on sale to the private sector. This is not what is happening. I've just said in my initial response, chairperson, for all to hear that the railway owner remains Transnet, the principal railway operator remains Transnet. That all that is being experimented with here is that if, for example, on a particular corridor, uh, 70 uh, trains are to pass in the day, whereas there is potential for 80 trains, then the other 10 can be made available to the private sector for a period of time. And this uh, will then teach us some lessons about how government and the private sector can cooperate. So I don't know whose confusion it is, certainly not mine, that this is not privatization. This is a service offering, as my initial response said. We are very aware as government that unemployment unemployment is a major issue in South Africa. And uh, what is important in creating jobs in South Africa is that we need investment. And to get investment in South Africa, we need to create a climate of stability that welcomes investment in South Africa. So I think some of us, Honorable Chair, need to look in the mirror and ask the question, am I creating and contributing to stability in this country and creating a climate where I can actually get investment that will create jobs and therefore industrialization as well? This is an old, tired rhetoric that we've heard time and again about collapsing SOEs and selling them to somebody or the other, which requires no response whatsoever because that is not the intention at all. And Honorable Mao knows that, and this is mere political rhetoric for its own sake. Thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Members, thank you, Honorable Minister.
0: Honorable Members, you know when you ask a question, you do it with a reason to get the response or answer to your question. It doesn't assist us that while the Honourable Minister is replying to the follow-up question, that you will just switch on your mic and you interject, and there's other ministers also now in the House who are ordinary members who are also responding at the same time. It doesn't assist the process. This, these are quite serious matters that we are dealing with, and let's give each other sufficient space uh, to respond to and deal with the matters at hand. The, the next follow-up question is to be asked by the Honourable Dlamini.
7: Thanks, thanks, Chair. Uh, I think I think the issue of privatization has been uh, uh, well explained. Uh, In in terms of the the, the private sector participation in the in the in the in the rail network, how is it going to assist in terms of security? Knowing that uh, currently we have a state of theft of our uh, rail and the security around the rail the railway line and the Notes that have been
3: identified, are they busy now with what? Thanks, Chair. The Honourable Minister. Thank you, Honourable Lamini, for, for your question. Um, this might not be, uh, if you like, a direct uh, assistance in this particular instance, but uh, this is part of the conversation that Transnet and interested parties from the private sector will be having in regard to the specific issue of the availability of slots. However, if we look at this, let's call it the coal line, from Ermelo to the Richards Bay, there the coal industry has played a very active part in contributing to the security uh, of parts of that line that needs to be extended further to ensure that there are uh, drones operated for for parts of the line, uh, to ensure that there are security deterrents for anybody who wants to interfere with the signaling system or engage in copper theft or other equipment theft as well and that is the kind of cooperation that we would like to see on all the rail corridors and i'm sure minister mbalula would like to see that in relation to prasa as well there is absolutely no doubt Honourable Dramini, ramini as you point out that copper theft and rail theft and other infrastructure theft and vandalism is uh, having a major and disastrous effect on the efficiency of logistics in south africa and we are certainly working also with the south african police service uh, to ensure that special teams are made available at appropriate points where these uh, vandalisation projects are run uh, in order to ensure that we understand who's behind it and uh, i want to reiterate that it is my firm view that the export of scrap metal must be banned for a while, for a start. And that will ensure that there's no market externally uh, for the theft uh, or or those sorts of infrastructure that are in fact stolen uh, or or vandalized in one way or another. And of course, this is a matter that the DTIC is working on. And the sooner we uh, have a strong set of measures in that particular regard, I believe it will, it will begin to change the face uh, of theft of infrastructure as well. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. The next follow-up question is the Honourable Kachalia.
4: Can the Minister detail the terms and details uh, of, uh, of the discussions that have been going on, have uh, been in progress since April 2021? and And please do not recite the mantra of sensitive commercial information the nation needs to know. Perhaps he'll tell us who's going to absorb the costs of the dereliction of infrastructure while signing up to a two-year contract while government retains ownership. Hospital pass
0: The Honorable Minister.
3: Thank you, Chairperson. I didn't hear the last sentence or two that uh, Honourable Kachalia uh, and, and the the throwaway Honourable line.
0: Kachalia. Honourable Kachalia, don't be unfair. While the minister is still trying to ask you, you already switch on your microphone against the rules again, and you simply carry on. That's not acceptable, sir. Will you just repeat the last part of your question so that the minister can respond to you, please?
4: I'm I'm not sure what the last where the last part begins but I'll say perhaps he will tell us who is going to absorb the costs of the of the de- destruction and dereliction of infrastructure while signing up to a two year contract while government retains ownership thereof and my last thing that he didn't hear was questioned is this a hospital pass much the honorable
0: minister I hope you got the part that you couldn't hear now
3: Yes, uh, which I'll ignore for now, Chairperson. Thank you very much. I don't have the terms and details in front of me, but the discussions or the process was initiated in April 2022, not 2021. Uh, So it's a fairly new process. Secondly, I'm aware that uh, Transnet has had various forms of feedback from interested private sector parties, some of which has been publicized in the press as well. Thirdly, Uh, The initial proposition from Transnet was, A, the availability of slots, B, the use of uh, their own equipment from the private sector, and C, uh, on what is called a footstool basis, meaning uh, as the railway infrastructure stands at the moment. However, Chairperson, I think we're all aware that uh, certainly uh, in KwaZulu-Natal as a result of the recent floods and the damage that has been caused, to infrastructure generally, but to human life as well. And in this particular instance, to the railway infrastructure, the railway line between uh, Etegweni and Cato Ridge won't be operational for quite a while. Uh, It's currently undergoing serious evaluation and uh, various processes are in place in order to as rapidly as possible, like Transnet did uh, on the Bayhead Road uh, within the Durban Harbor, to restore the line to full functionality and uh, that answers the question about uh, the state of the infrastructure and i am sure that transnet and the interested parties will have further conversations about the two-year contract or anything that pertains to that as well if uh, mr kacharya has the necessity for any further information uh, he can ask a, a written or put forward a written parliamentary question, and we'll certainly make the details available. Uh, and if there is any commercial requirement not to pass on information at this stage, we'll let him know at that point in time. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last supplementary question is to be asked by the Honorable Putelezi. Uh,
2: thank you, Chairperson. Uh,
7: Honorable Minister, considering that infrastructure is not uh, a movable asset, what other benefits are being offered to attract private sector investors? Please,
3: can you provide full details? Thank you very much.
0: The question was asked on behalf of the Honorable Putaleti. Thank you. Honorable Minister?
3: I think it's well accepted, the Honourable Member, who asked the question on behalf of Honourable Butelezzi, that uh, infrastructure is not a movable asset. Uh, But I imagine that, for example, if there is an investor that wants to co-invest with Transnet uh, in the new pier that needs to be developed in the uh, Durban Harbour, which uh, will require deepening of the harbour, it will require the reclamation of some of the harbour uh, land, so to speak, and would involve uh, a fair number of billions of runs in order to actually undertake. Uh, that will provide an additional facility, for example, for a shipping line that move that wants to move uh, certain types of goods or containers uh, in and out of uh, Durban and utilise it as its. Uh, Uh, hub or as a convenient uh, offloading point as well. So uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's a number of uh, operators within the maritime sector that have demonstrated interest in, for example, that that kind of project. And uh, they will have worked out that there are benefits for themselves uh, in contributing to the infrastructure, as many have done. Uh, in other parts of Africa and other parts of the world as well in order to create a more sophisticated port environment, both in terms of infrastructure, but also in terms of equipment like cranes, straddles, et cetera, uh, which would benefit not only the ships that uh, end up in that particular harbor, but also uh, the terminal operations that this particular entity might want to conduct. So there are a range of benefits from an infrastructure point of view, but also from a trade point of view and a shipping point of view that various parties will be interested in. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, question number 248 has been asked by the Honourable L. F. Chabalala to the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure. The Honourable Minister.
12: Thank you, Honourable Chairperson, thank you Honourable Chabalala for the question. Uh, As of the end of March 2022, the Presidential Employment Stimulus has supported 869,942 jobs and livelihood opportunities since the program was launched in October 2020. The breakdown is jobs created uh, (laughs) 677,675 jobs Jobs retained forty thousand three hundred and ninety nine, and livelihood supported one hundred and fifty one thousand eight hundred and sixty eight. Uh, this represents a total uh, represents seventy percent of the total stimulus targets across the two phases, with phase two still underway. The uh, department of public works and infrastructure was part of phase one during which we have created 1,886 job opportunities for young professionals in the build environment. DPWI has also applied to uh, the National Skills Fund in the Department of Higher Education and training and has secured funding which targets to train 8,300 EPWP participants. So the breakdown for the 8,300 is Artisans Development Program 400, Learnerships 450, Accredited Skills Program 7000, Capacity Building 450. Furthermore, DPWI has partnered with the Financial Sector Conduct Authority to capacitate uh, EPWE participants on financial literacy matters. And in the 22-23 financial year, a total of 4,750 participants will be capacitated through financial education. Further, uh, we also through EPWP, through the infrastructure um, sector is developing skills by training youth in artisans trades through the National Youth Service Program. And in terms of entrepreneurs, uh, DPWI, we are collaborating with some public bodies implementing the Vukepile Learnership Program, which trains contractors to implement infrastructure projects that are labor intensive. And for this year, we're planning to do 70 contractors. Uh, all of this contributes to the enhancement of employment in the construction and in uh, and infrastructure delivery in the country. And we also provide non-financial support to EPWP participants that aim to start and undertake their own businesses. This support is through the training on a program called Start and Improve Your Business. And in 22-23 financial year, we plan to support 205 participants. Uh, Chairperson, through these various training initiatives, EPWP endeavours in, and to empower women, youth, and people living with disabilities to improve their employability. I uh, thank you.
0: Thank you, Honorable Minister. I've been informed that the Honorable SR van Scalkeweg will take charge of the first parliamentary question on behalf of the Honorable Chabalala. And this is in line with Rule 137. 10, paragraph A. Honourable
13: thank you, Honourable Chairperson, Honourable Minister, thank you for your response in terms of this question. Taking into account the current economic environment, especially with regards to the high unemployment uh, that we have in terms of the youth, the women and people with disability, it's encouraging that you are Uh, taking into account those designated groups when you identify them for employment opportunities. And we welcome also the initiative of the EPWP, the Expanded Public Works Program, which are really uh, a welcome relief for the needy and the poor. But Honorable Minister, we have a challenge in terms of these initiatives. There's There's no real transfer of skills taking place and uh, which limits the employability uh, of these individuals partaking in these programs. So I want to uh, ask, Honourable Minister, uh, you've already indicated uh, the opportunities that has been created, but what are your five, uh, five-year targets that you've set, and whether the Department will indeed uh, 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 attain those targets that has been set? Thank you very much.
0: Honourable Minister.
13: Thank you, Honorable Hans Kalkberg. Indeed, uh, the total employment
12: target for the five year MSDF is five million work opportunities. Uh, the EPWP funding does not include training. So we apply for training funding from the Skills Development Fund in the Department of Education. And then we partner with other private sector bodies to also provide skills. But, We must remember, too, that we are also then uh, passing on the money to the provinces, to municipalities, uh, to the non-state sector, the NPO sector. And, And then those sectors then develop their own training skills within the EPWP program. I will agree with you that we need to begin to look at uh, because EPWP is a temporary, sometimes only six months, that we, we maybe need to extend the period to one year to enable people to get that transfer of skills. Uh, but then you're going to reduce the number of opportunities for new people to come into the EPWP. But, but it is a concern that we need to address with the investment that government is making into EPWP. I thank you.
0: The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Graham.
14: Thank you, House Chair. Minister, while it is admirable to speak of the 1,886 beneficiaries of the Presidential Employment Stimulus Program in the Department, and a target of 5 million potential job opportunities in the Expanded Public Works Program, these go little way to address the scourge of unemployment in this country. In fact, 7.9 million people were unemployed by the end of 2021, with 278,000 more people joining the ranks of the unemployed in the last quarter. The second highest job losses emanated from the construction sector, with 35,000 people losing their jobs. Job seekers in the 15 to 24 years band sits at a staggering 66%. Work opportunities are not jobs. They are a form of social grant, a stipend at half the rate of the minimum wage in return for eight days of work a month. No child grows up dreaming of becoming an EPWP worker. We have to do more than work opportunities. Minister, what are you doing to create real, sustainable jobs that support people and their families, as opposed to mere work opportunities that are merely a form of poverty alleviation? Thank
0: you. Minister.
14: Thank you, Honorable
12: Graham-Marie, I will agree with you that the intention of EPWP is to assist with poverty relief and and so does government uh, come to the help of the poor and the unemployed in many other ways in terms of grants, the 350 social, the states of relief grants, there are many of these uh, assistance to poor people. In terms of the creating sustainable jobs, it is the, the, the responsibility of both the public sector and the private sector to create jobs. And therefore, government must create the conditions conducive and the environment conducive for the private sector to create jobs by investing in infrastructure. And that is exactly what we are doing. We are leading by investing in infrastructure and then getting the crowding in effect by the private sector to create jobs. And I must say that in terms of uh, infrastructure, government has already uh, launched an infrastructure investment plan. We have gazetted more than 62 investment plans in a question later on. I will give the breakdown of what we have completed of infrastructure and also what is still under construction. So that is the contribution from the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure, but also in terms of the economic reconstruction and recovery plan. There again, infrastructure, the president has identified as the flywheel of the economy. So with the partnership with the private sector and us going up to the investment conferences, um, raising funding, because we can't get all the funding out of the fiscus for the projects, but we have been successful in June of 2020, where we've been able to raise 304 billion Rand for infrastructure from the private sector. And that is the partnership that we are continuing to grow to create more sustainable, proper jobs. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Sukas.
15: Um, Thank you, Chair. Honorable Minister, um, would the Minister kindly um, tell the House how the crises currently brought about by the floods in KZN would be utilised to maximise the opportunity it represents for job creation in line with government programs such as the EPW program, to one, put together a comprehensive recruitment strategy to repair and rebuild the province over the next two-year period, using it um, to using the opportunity of infrastructure rebuilds and repair of basic services to advance the goals of skills development by employing graduates and unemployed unemployed youth. Uh, thereby ensuring that the disaster funds have both short-term and long-term value, aligned with the goals of programs to upskill and create employment of especially young people.
0: Thank you. The Honourable Minister.
12: Thank you, um, Honourable Chairperson. Like I've said, that the local municipalities in KZN, the provincial government, MEC, Sabia, Public Works and Human Settlements, they have designed specific projects for the KZN and floods that will be driven by the province and the municipalities to help with the clearing of the mud uh, and, and and general work opportunities for epwp in terms of the the graduates uh the department of public works and infrastructure in terms of our rural breach project which we have now identified um, 18 for the current financial year, plus another six. And just yesterday, I received a request for another 28 rural bridges that were destroyed in KZN. And there we bring in the young professionals, the interns that we have paid for bursaries to go to universities. We take them out to these projects of the rural bridges together with the Department of Defense so that they can get the transfer of skills and training on the job. So there's a good coordination between uh, uh, Etoqueni and the other municipalities. We are providing multi-part, multidisciplinary professional skills, quantity surveyors, architects, engineers to assist the municipalities just to do the assessment of the floods in KZN. And that report have been submitted. We are now in the process. I'm going back to KZN tomorrow, where we are handing over three bridges that we've completed. And then also to, 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 to take a look at the uh, government buildings. 40 government buildings were destroyed with the, with the floods. And we have done the assessment. And again, it will create job opportunities with that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madam Minister. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Hendricks.
4: Thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Honorable House Chair, uh, it is quite clear that uh, employment for the poor is in the Minister's Department. I would like to know from the Minister whether she... Uh, has the capacity and the energy uh, to take responsibility for full employment for the poor. Thank you very much.
0: Honourable Minister.
12: I certainly have the energy, Honourable (laughs) Hendricks. I think as a collective, uh, both at all three spheres of government, the responsibility is enshrined in our constitution that we all have got the responsibility to deal with socio-economic rights of our people. And therefore, I think working together, we will be able to make a dent in poverty if we work together and put all other sources and manpower and energy together. I certainly have the energy, I can promise you that. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable members, question number 267 has been asked by the Honorable S.S. Zondo to the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure. The Honourable Minister.
12: Thank you, Honourable Chairperson, and thank you to Honourable Zondo. Um, I was in KZN two weeks ago, um, Honourable Chairperson, and we have identified 616 land parcels, which we then had to go As, through.
2: Sorry, yeah, yeah, okay, I put my question in. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, no, Honorable Hendrix,
0: your microphone is on. Please switch off your microphone, Honorable Hendrix. Honorable Minister, will you just start from afresh again? Yes.
12: I was in KZN two weeks ago, Honorable and. Uh, and we have identified on our immovable asset register, 616 parcels of land. We then had to do verification and also do suitability in terms of a criteria to see whether it's suitable to be used for land resettlement. After we have done the desktop exercise, we, it has been reduced to 258 land parcels from public works and infrastructure. Uh, KZN government has also contributed 193 parcels of land, and then we are still waiting on the Metropolitan Etiquini to give us their list of parcels of land from their immovable asset register. But the criteria that we have applied to make sure that the land is suitable uh, and to exclude those parcels of land that are not suitable was uh, whether we had dams nearby, encroachment, fences, whether it's illegally occupied, whether it was zone for parking, protected areas, public spaces or for railways, rivers, road reserves, servitude, harbors, water canals, and especially whether it is a wetland. So that is the criteria that we have applied. We've also excluded pieces of land, which was earmarked uh, for human settlements uh, uh, development. And um, tomorrow, when I go back to the province, we will be meeting with the MEC and the Department of Human Settlements that will be responsible for building the top structures. The municipality will be responsible for providing the bulk infrastructure like water, sanitation and electricity. So it is a collaborative effort by all three spheres of government to try and resettle communities as soon as possible. We're also engaging with the communities in terms of social facilitation to inform them about the options of resettlement. As we know, our communities don't like to be too far away from where they currently live. And the Human Settlements Department and HDA is busy with that process. I thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. This first supplementary question will go to the Honourable S.S.
7: Zondo. Thanks uh, for your response, Honourable Minister. As no time should be spared in bringing the immediate house relief to those who lost their homes. As a result of recent devastating floods in Kaiser 10. Honorable Minister, your, de- your department has also identified a number of state owned buildings that were da- damaged by the floods, which include magistrate courts, police stations, military base, and museums. How soon can we expect the repair of these buildings to be completed? And what interim measures? are in place that will ensure that the service delivered from this if affected department continues, especially as regards the magistrate court and police station. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Member. The honourable minister
12: thank you, thank you, Honorable Zondo. Yes, we have completed the assessment of all the forty nine buildings, including the KZN Museum. Uh, We have deployed 108 professionals internally and externally from the private sector and four multidisciplinary teams that are helping us to do the assessments quickly. The multidisciplinary teams are also helping other municipalities uh, to do their assessments. We have started the procurement for 30 of the buildings and um, I will get feedback tomorrow about the other 19 buildings. But the assessment has been done and we're working as fast as we can, follow due process, doing due diligence, making sure that we follow all the processes of National Treasury uh, in proceeding with procurement to repair these buildings. So I will give uh, the Honourable Member an update from time to time as to where we are. Uh, We have also assisted uh, the Air Force base uh, that was completely flooded with mud and rain uh, to get generators in for them, uh, to help them to clean up the the Air Force base and also to secure the fence of the Air Force base because some of those containers were blown right over the highway into the Air Force base. So it's all work in progress. Thank you, Honourable Member.
0: Thank you, Minister. The next supplementary question will be asked by the Honourable Van Scalkewijk.
13: Thank you, Honourable Minister. Minister, you've just uh, explained to us how many land parcels has originally been identified, but that number has now been decreased, and you are venturing now into the local and provincial sphere, to establish more land parcels what other avenues are you going to use if you don't find Number
16: one.
0: <laughs> your microphone is on and we can hear your discussion please switch it off Calvary, you can continue
13: Yes, thank you, Honourable Chair. Uh, Can you give us an indication of what avenues you you might be using to ensure that you did uh, uh, satisfy the need? And will that... That Order, Honourable
0: Members, order... Honourable Pelo, please ensure your microphone is off. Otherwise, you will be removed from the platform. Continue, Honourable Member.
13: Well, will it now mean, Minister, the original timeframe that you indicated will now be, be amended, taking into consideration that you are struggling to secure the, the relevant parcels? Thank you.
0: Honourable Minister, I hope you, with all these interruptions, you got the gist of the question. <laughs>
13: Yes,
12: no, Honourable Member van Scalkeweg, there will be no delays. In fact, uh, two days after the floods, we were able to um, start the identification process. What I was saying is that National is contributing 258. The province contributing 193 land parcels. Atakwini must still add their land parcels to it. The process that we will follow is that once the human settlements department has identified and that they've got their plans already, their business plan already, at that stage, we will then transfer the land gratis either to the municipalities or to the the provincial government. So now we we, we are on, on, on track. And if we should run out of land parcels, I will approach Minister Pravin Gordon and see if the state-owned entities uh, don't have any land there and also the Minister of Transport to see if any land is available from him. Thank you.
0: The next uh, supplementary question is to be
6: asked by the Honourable Heron. Uh, Thank you, House Chair. Thank you, Minister. Minister, public land belongs to all South Africans. It is held in custody on our behalf by different spheres of government and state-owned entities to be used for land reform and other land needs in our country. There are devastating floods in KwaZulu-Natal, but there are precarious and vulnerable communities across our country. I think to some extent, with regards to KZN, you've answered my question, but what role is being played by state-owned entities and other spheres of government with regards to addressing land reform and land needs in our country.
0: Thank you. Honourable Minister.
12: Thank you, thank you, Honourable Aaron, Honourable Chairperson, the the land reform agenda is based on the presidential advisory panel recommendations of which government has uh, accepted 85% of the recommendations. So, in terms of that, you will look at land reform or land distribution, uh, land restitution, and also land tenure. And again, there, there's an interministerial committee chaired by the deputy president, where we report on a monthly basis about the pace of, of, of land that must be released. I can tell you that for uh, human settlements since 2019. we have released 13,185 properties for restitution, 204 properties, and then also another 120 properties for for tenure. So that is, if we want to have a successful land uh, reform program in our country, We cannot just rely on the land that's owned by national government. There's already, Minister Pravin Gordon has already come to the table and has said land parcels belonging to state-owned entities that they are willing and able to release, to form part of the land reform program. But we need to get into the provincial uh, immovable assets of every province. I'm busy doing that, I know exactly what every province has got on the asset register. We now need to turn to all the metropolitans in the uh, country and see what land they are sitting with. Because we can't have land reform and at the same time municipalities are selling of land, well located land uh, to, to developers. So, the, the coordination in the, at the interministerial committee. I know what's available in Cape Town. You can just keep quiet. Um,
0: the point of if order. Order, honourable members. Order, honourable minister. Honourable Minister, let me just hear why this honourable member is rising. Will you take your seat, Honourable Minister? Honourable Member, why are you rising?
13: I think the minister must not
17: give, send uh, direct messages. To no,
0: the that's members. not a point of order, Honourable oh, Member. Shame it's man. not a point of order. So, oh, yes. oh, order, Honourable Members. Honourable Minister, yes, you have a few seconds left to conclude yes, your response. Yes, thank
12: you. I, I'm, I'm pleading, I'm pleading, Chairperson, that all three spheres of government must release land for land reform and don't just point the finger at national government. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Honourable Minister. The last supplementary question will go to the Honourable Sheikh Imam.
10: Thank you. Uh, Honourable Minister, has your department done an exercise as to exactly how much of land is available in South Africa from all spheres of government that might be suitable for housing, given the fact that, and I think you're aware of it, that many of these municipalities, Cape Town, I think, has got about 500,000. itiaguini has got about 500,000, all on waiting lists. And secondly, and this is a problem, countrywide minister, and I'm asking this so that we could ensure we make land available for housing throughout the country instead of allowing people to live on the dangerous land. But very importantly, a Jackie Joseph from Sitsikama has been writing to your department, land that fell under the former Prime Minister John Foster. 15 hectares are standing there, and he's looking to grow him, He's looking to be able to grow wheat. He's written to your department since 2020 and no response. If you haven't received that, Minister, I request that you can get that information and that correspondence in. Thank you, ma'am.
0: The Honourable Minister.
12: Thank you, Honourable uh, Sheikh Imam. Certainly, I would like to see that correspondence and go and investigate what was the response uh, from the department. Because in terms of Giyama, the Government Immovable Asset Management Act, uh, there is a process to be followed where, where people have to make an application and then it goes to public participation and all of that. And I will appreciate if the member can assist me with that information. Well, two state land audits has been done, and I have answered in many parliamentary questions the details of the state land audits. Uh, the one was done in 2014 and the one in 2017. If you look at that land audit, you will see exactly What amount of hectares of land will we need to transform and to make sure that we integrate our country? So the audits are there, but we need to take now our lead from the National Spatial Development Framework that will be approved shortly. And that national spatial development framework must guide us where we must build houses. What is zoned for agriculture? What is zoned for commercial? Because the time is long overdue. 28 years in our democracy, we must integrate this country and especially our cities. Thank you.
16: Thank you,
7: Honorable Minister.
0: Honourable members, question number 257 has been asked by the Honourable Chabalala to the Minister of Public
3: Enterprises. Thank you, Chairperson, and thanks to Honourable Chabalala. The... Transnet Freight Rail's historical underinvestments in infrastructure and maintenance backlog dating back to the 1990s has resulted in an aged and unreliable network that does not support the efficient movement of trains. Whilst this constraint impacts Transnet's ability to fully exploit the increasing demand for coal, the interventions that TFR, as it is called, Has put into place to deal with the maintenance backlog has started to show some improvement. In recent months, TFR has ramped up maintenance on the North Corridor with up to 26 planned maintenance uh, events per day, with major maintenance and activities conducted during the annual shutdown plan for July 2022. A significant amount of work has been undertaken internally to improve procurement timeframes for key contracts, which have been a significant cause for delays in the past. The finalization of major bulk materials and and on-track machine contracts has led to faster and more efficient resolution of historical and new maintenance issues as they arise. Given the increased focus on maintenance on the corridor, TFR expects to uh, increase or remove 42% of the current speed restrictions by the end of July. This will mean that an additional six slots will be restored, which will result in more volumes for both the customer and TFR itself. However, to take full advantage of the opportunities that, that are available and to decrease the cost of conducting business in South Africa, we must urgently restore the network back to an acceptable international A standard. With some 30,000 track kilometres, this would require massive investment, which the other constraint to our performance is the unavailability of locomotives to service the corridor. The impact of setting aside the 1064 locomotive programme has reduced Transnate Freight Rail's overall system capacity for the transportation of coal to Richards Bay Coal Terminal from an annual capacity of 77 million tonnes To an annual capacity of 60 million tons. Thank you, Chairperson. You're muted, Chairperson.
18: Thank you, Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable Chief of the Majority Party. The first supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Jay Shabalala from the Chamber.
7: No, I'm not Jay Shabalala, but I'll take the question.
18: You are replacing her. Yes. You may proceed, Honourable Member.
7: Uh, with reference to the government's limited funding for the state-owned corporations, in what ways will Transnet implement structural reforms intended to build private sector confidence and engage in new infrastructure investment in the context of public and private, public-private partnerships? Thanks, Chair.
18: Honourable Minister.
3: Thank you, Honorable Dlamini. Uh, Chairperson, uh, structural reforms is a very important part and very central to the reforms that we require in South Africa and which are currently monitored uh, in the presidency through Operation Bulent Key amongst those has been firstly the establishment of the Transnet National Ports Authority, which was done last year as an independent subsidiary of Transnet and uh, the Ports Authority plays a very important part as landlord on the one hand, but ushering in uh, ships and get, providing other services at 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 our ports. The second element uh, in this particular regard is to extend the port facilities, for example, at, at Durban, but at other ports as well, uh, through investment both by Transnet, which has limited finances, uh, and through public sector participation, private sector participation as well. And I've made reference to this earlier in the day, uh, in relation to the new terminal proposed at uh, the Durban Harbour, at Nuka, at Richards Bay, uh, and later at, at other ports as well, including East London. And those those reforms will also assist, uh, particularly exporters and importers in various parts of the country. The third element is to restore, as I've just indicated, the rail capacity and the rail efficiency to a completely new level and uh, to an international standard. That will ensure that uh, rail operations become truly efficient and become cost uh, effective for uh, the commercial sector to utilize instead of roads, as we discussed earlier in the afternoon. And that will change the picture as far as logistics in South Africa is concerned, by moving the transportation of goods from road to rail as well. Similarly, other structural reforms are also planned. Thank you.
18: Thank you very much. Uh, uh, The second supplementary question would be asked by Hon. Kachalia.
4: It's common cause that transnet rail and ports woes have contributed huge losses in potential earnings to our coal miners. Even as global constraints on supply, a surge in prices for thermal coal of at least 46% in Asia and rocketing gas prices are the order of the day. In belated recognition of this public enterprise failure, government is now seeking private sector involvement, which we applaud. Will the Minister, though, without tired reference to force majeure, the eventuality of which we warned against time and time again, Tell us by what date on what term.
18: Honourable Kachalna, uh, may the, uh, the front table assist us. If there's anyone that switches off the mic, please just unmute mute him or eject him if he does it for the second time. Thank you very much. You may proceed.
4: Thank, thank you. Will the minister, though, without tired reference to force majeure, the eventuality of which we warned against time and time again, Tell us by what date and on what terms the much-needed private sector onboarding
3: will take place.
18: Honourable the Minister.
3: Thank you, Chairperson, and thanks to Honourable Kachalia. The fact that there is a huge demand for coal is certainly an acknowledged uh, fact, particularly arising from the current events in, in Europe. Uh, but also the increased demand for coal in uh, the eastern part of of the world as well. And, uh, of course, there's been increased profits for coal miners as a result of the increase in coal prices as well. I've just explained that due to limitations, firstly, on the security front, secondly, in terms of uh, the absence of the complete set of 1064 locomotives, Uh, and inefficiencies within the rail system itself, including vandalism, all of these factors have conspired against uh, Transnet Rail being able to do its best in this particular regard. The reference to force majeure, it's not a tired reference, was in fact a basis upon which the coal companies and Transnet have been negotiating a new set of contracts, an addenda to contracts the status of which should have uh, reached a point where there's some finalization between the two parties, but I'm not uh, totally briefed on that at this stage. And nobody can say exactly uh, what state and on what terms uh, the private sector participation will occur. The process has been initiated. Um, The RFIs and RFQs and so on have been issued. Those need to be properly processed. They need to be diligently examined. And finally, negotiations need to take place between the chosen parties and Transnet to the satisfaction of both. So uh, at this point in time, let us say that that is a a process that is in motion. And once we have greater clarity, we can certainly advise parliament on that. Thank you.
18: Thank you. The the third supplementary question, Honorable Members, point of order.
19: Chair, I just, I didn't want to disturb the minister because he was reading very carefully. But it's very clear that when the ANC asks a minister a question, they have a prepared answer to read. But when a member of the opposition asks, then they have nothing to read. And it really makes a model of this question session.
8: Okay. Honour- point of order, point of order, point of order, chairperson of the session, Judith chabalalun virtual
18: Honourable Honour JT, allow me just to... Yes. To thank end you a little bit thank you very much it's out of order you know, thanks you will know very well that is not a point of order it's a point of debate in your perception shall we proceed and uh, take the supplementary question
8: um,
18: the third supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Maute. Honorable Maute. I I the order, honorable
8: members.
18: Honorable Maud, may we allow the honorable member to be heard if possible, please? Honorable members, you can do better than that, please. Honorable members,
11: order, please. Honorable Mauta, we may ask your question. Thank you very much, uh, Chair. Well, Chair, the Minister just said that because of the decision they took of suspending the 1064 program, it has led to the reduction of the tonnages. Now, that's a no-brainer, hey? I mean, you can do better than that. So, what are you still waiting for? Why can't you take back some of the locomotives um, in service? Now, my question is, Minister, the Minerals Council of South Africa reported that coal investments in the country So a decrease of over 2 billion rents between 2010 and 2018. There's also pressure from civil society organizations who are litigating against the use of coal, as well as the global pressure to transition from coal to renewable energy. Now, realistically speaking, what impacts do all these attempts to limit mining cumulatively have on the ability of Transnet to reposition itself as a global leader in rail transportation for goods?
18: Thank you,
3: Chair. Honourable, the Minister. Uh, Thank you, Chair. With reference to the Honourable Member from the DA, DA, uh, as you correctly pointed out, it's his perception, but perhaps it's his delusion as well. The follow-up questions are not with prepared answers. Uh, They are spontaneous answers just for your information. And one day when you might or might not become a minister, you'll realize that. In reference to Honourable Mao, I'm not sure what is the no-brainer. If a manufacturer or uh, OEM doesn't deliver fully, and I've given uh, some of the details earlier as well, the 1064 locomotives that were required, and where they are delivery of some of these locomotives, they are deficient in one respect or another, I'm not sure what you take back. So the fact of the matter is that the country and the coal industry understand that there's a shortage as far as locomotives are concerned, and that limits the capacity of Transnet Rail to do the work that it is required to do. As far as coal is concerned, and the just energy transition is concerned, Chairperson, uh, it is fairly clear, uh, both from the IRP 19, but also discussions at COP26, and future discussions at future COPs as well, that uh, coal will be a part of the global energy system although on a declining basis for some time to come. And uh, our responsibility in South Africa is to contribute to a decarbonization process. And if all of the other work that is being done within Transnet uh, in the next couple of years, Transnet will return itself to a a world-class logistics company. And I'm quite confident of that. Thank you.
18: Thank you, Honourable Minister. The last supplementary question, Honourable Members, will be asked by Honourable Boutelis.
7: It will be asked by Zondo on behalf of Honourable Boutelis.
18: You may proceed, Honourable Member, but you must note that what is written here in terms of your submission, it says uh, Boutelis. But nevertheless, proceed.
7: (laughs) Honourable Minister, given the, the global debate on Phasing out of fossil fuel and the phasing in of all emissions abatement technology, in line with the ultimate goal of reducing emissions to reduce the global warming and the fact that ESCOM generates the bulk of its electricity from coal fire power stations. Does the department have plans in place to not only profit from the use of coal, but also to invest in, in the technology to achieve the balance? of reducing the climate change, as advised by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Please provide full details.
3: Thank you.
18: Thank you. Honourable Minister.
3: Honourable Sondo, thank you very much. Uh, Government, as has been indicated on various occasions, most recently last year, uh, prior to the COP26 uh, event that took place in Glasgow, where the President signed a a statement together with uh, several other uh, world leaders. Uh, Government is committed to reducing the usage of fossil fuels. It is true that 41% approximately of carbon emissions in South Africa is through the production of electricity. And that is why ESCOM for some time now has been preparing uh, its own just energy transition. Uh, That is how it will decommission certain Uh, power stations and ensure at the same time that under the umbrella of the uh, IRP-19, there is a replacement of the megawatts that will be lost as a result of the decommissioning of coal power stations. So that balance uh, and that roadmap is certainly in in place, and as soon as money is available, you've heard about the $8.5 billion that certain countries have made available for some Elements of the costs of this uh, transition process, including the retraining of workers, both in coal mines, but particularly at at power stations, those are all contributions uh, towards reducing carbon emissions in South Africa and meeting the target of 1.5 degrees that South Africa has committed itself to. ESCOM itself, of course, does not profit from the utilization of coal. The coal industry certainly does profit from the selling of coal both to ESCOM and to the world as well. Thank you, Chair.
18: Thank you, Honourable Minister. Question number 277-277 seven has been asked by Honourable McPherson to the Minister of Trade and Industry and Competition. We have been informed that the Minister will be answering the question from the Chamber. Honourable Minister. Uh,
5: thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh,
20: Honourable McPherson. Honourable Members, Food prices have gone up sharply both in South Africa and globally. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization's database, between February and March this year, global food prices saw the largest single month increase in more than 30 years. South Africa imports about 84 billion rands worth of agriculture and food products annually. So these trends affect local consumers very substantially. The World Bank about nine days ago issued a food security brief that identifies a number of causes driving food prices. And it's worth quoting. They say, even before COVID-19 reduced incomes and disrupted supply chains, chronic and acute hunger on the rise due to various factors, including conflict, socioeconomic conditions, natural hazards, climate change, and pests. The impact of the war in Ukraine has risked global food security, with food prices likely to remain high for the foreseeable future and expected to push millions of additional people into food insecurity. And then they go on and provide information, for example, that as of April 2022, the agricultural price index is up 43% compared to January 2021. Uh, Maize and wheat prices are 56% and 55% higher, respectively, while rice prices are the only ones that have come down by 17%. They continue by saying the war in Ukraine is a major shock for global commodity markets affecting wheat, maize, edible oils and fertilizers. And then they provide information on the extent of fertilizer price rises, 20% up since January, three times higher compared to a year ago. These are extraordinary increases. Uh, I can add, of course, the impact of rising oil prices will affect the entire food value chain. Domestic supply chains were also affected by, among others, COVID-19, and the recent floods in KZN will have a significant impact on food prices. On the other hand, the data seems to suggest that food prices of locally produced products have increased at a slower rate than the number of imported items over the last three months. Favorable weather and good local crops for certain products have also assisted to keep prices lower than they otherwise would have been, except of course now, with the floods. To address high food prices, government has taken a number of measures, I want to highlight a few. First, we've supported efforts to scale up local production of food products in both agriculture and food processing. This included the announcement of a special fund by Delrad and IDC to support local farmers, by PepsiCo to support small-scale farmers, and by the DTIC to sugar farmers affected by the July 2021 unrest. Local retailers have been encouraged to support local producers. DTIC supported the building of a new 1.3 billion rand edible oil refinery plant in Richards Bay. Second, the competition authorities have been monitoring food markets, which included an an investigation into sudden price rises, as was the case with garlic and ginger, uh, honorable members will recall. And it's now launched a market inquiry into fresh uh, food produce, which will look at the structure of the market and whether that contributes to higher food prices. Third, the DTIC has put conditions to new tariff measures to contain price rises. Recent tariff adjustments have sought to peg price rises to no more than the rise in the CPI uh, or another appropriate price index. Fourth, National Treasury announced a reduction in the general fuel levy which is expected to save 120 rand each time a farmer fills up a Hilux pucky. And finally, the DTIC and Delrad has put industry partnerships together in the sugar and poultry sectors and cooperated with the citrus industry to address their concerns to expand South African exports of citrus
19: fruits. Thank you very much.
18: Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by Honourable Mafiksen.
19: Thank you, Minister, for the comprehensive response. And I think that we can all agree that South Africans are battling and battling under the price increases that they are being uh, subjected to. And people are battling to feed their families, children are going hungry, malnutrition is on the increase, uh, and it is really difficult for families across the length and breadth of the country. But the government has to shoulder some blame for the increases that we're seeing. For many, many years, government has put massive tariffs on many products into this country with the notion of trying to create industries while locking out imports into this country. And we've seen that with cement, with steel, poultry prices, administered prices by government contribute to the increase in goods and services in this country. Electricity increases are out of control, and so are water. So the government did the right thing, Minister, by relaxing the duty on fuel. That was the correct thing to do. So do you think that it's not the right thing to do to relax tariffs, and VAT on critical protein sources like poultry that feeds millions of South Africans and keeps hunger at bay for them? Thank you very much.:
18: Honorable Minister:
20: Thank you for the uh, supplementary question, Honorable uh, McPherson. I think you're absolutely right that ordinary South Africans are battling to feed their families and that we need to think of ways in which we can enhance quality of lives and bring down the price of basic foods. One of the challenges we face is the trade-off between jobs and prices. And in an area like the poultry industry, as an example, it's a significant employer of labor. We're trying to encourage many more small-scale black poultry farmers to come in and supply uh, uh, commercial markets And so we've got to find that right balance to ensure that South Africans also have jobs at an unemployment rate that is really at about 40%. Uh, Job creation is absolutely fundamental and we've got to address that. At the same time, I think you correctly point to a number of challenges with tariff increases. When tariffs on imported goods go up, there is the tendency, this is how markets work, when you create protection, uh, in all likelihood prices will rise. So what we're seeking to do now is to mitigate that by putting conditions to, uh, for an applicant's put in an, uh, an application to require them to commit not to increase prices uh, beyond either the PPI or the CPI. That is one element of it. The other part is, of course, to increase supply. The law of demand and supply indicates that if you can produce many, many more products and uh, scale up the quantities, you can bring down the unit prices. Energy remains an enormous challenge and um, uh, a a deep industrialization of the food value chain would be enhanced as we overcome the energy blockages. And Minister Gordon is, of course, working very closely with ESCOM to see how we can fix the institution and help to bring down the long-term energy price path. On the final issue that you've raised on VAT, I know that uh, Minister Godongwana has an enormously difficult job. On the one hand, VAT generates the resources that pays, among others, for uh, social grants, which is a key means. And I'm, I'm glad to see that there's cross-party support uh, for these grants. And, and at the same minister. time, he's got to be able to generate Honourable the taxes minister, for that. Thank you very much.
18: Thank you very much. Uh, the second supplementary question will be asked by Honourable Mutaoum from the Chamber.
21: Thanks, House Chair, uh, Minister. Climate change poses a serious threats not only the environment, but also the livelihoods of millions of people around the globe. The recent floods in KZN are indicative of the extent to which livelihood can be destroyed in a matter of hours. According to the Peter Marisbeck Economic Justice Dignity Group, which has indicated that the natural disaster can occur in KZN will mostly likely result in the increase in the price of basic foodstuffs in the near future. This is a view also articulated by Minister of Agriculture, Rural Development and Land Reform. Has the department done an analysis of the impact this will have on households? If not, why and if so, What measures have the Department put in place to mitigate against the further increase in food prices as anticipated? Thank you, House Chair. Honourable Minister.
20: Thank you very much, Honourable Mutong, for that uh, question. Uh, I I agree with the work that's been done by the Peter Peter Maritzburg Economic Justice uh, uh, Unit that identifies the impact of uh, the floods on food prices. KZN is an enormous food basket for South Africa. In 2019, about close to a quarter of all agriculture value add was generated in KZN. It accounts, Honorable Motowong, for about a third of the country's dairy um, herd, uh, probably about 10% of poultry, and it's a significant employer also of workers and uh, opportunity for small farmers. So we will see a price, Otto uh, our did some work on the likely impact and they've identified a number of channels through which we may see price rises as a result of the, the floods. The first of this is obviously damage that the floods have caused uh, on uh, agricultural lands. In the sugar industry, I've seen uh, calculations by the sugar growers of damage of more than 200 million rand. The second leg of it is in logistics. Port, rail line, Minister Gordon pointed to the rail line disruption that the floods have caused between uh, KZN and Gauteng, and of course initial damage at the port that has now been largely, uh, uh, largely addressed. The third channel is at the factory level, both food factories but also the suppliers of critical uh, inputs into food, like fertilizer. There's a a very large fertilizer factory in KwaZulu-Natal, the Fosco uh, factory. And so all of these are likely to have an impact. The DTIC has worked with KZN province to do a survey to identify the extent of damage and what it will take to turn that around and how soon it can be done. As that survey is completed, we would have a better sense of the actual steps that would need to be taken, but a number of measures are already being rolled out to try to ensure that farmers and factory owners are able to get back to production as quickly as possible. And then finally, on the ports and logistics side, uh, Minister Gordon and I went to KZN recently and we did an evaluation of the main uh, logistics lines and what it would take to be able to Uh, fix those much quicker than would normally be the case. Thank you very much.
22: Thank you very
18: much. The third question will be asked by Honorable Chaukou from the virtual platform. Oh, you're in the house. Over to you, Honorable
23: No, I'm here, Chair. No, thank you very much, Chair. Um, Minister, Um, I think this question says what measures are, are taken in terms of cushioning the food there's the South African consumers who are currently experiencing increase in the price of food. So, we want to give you a, you know, the the answer, or we want to, to to actually give you, you know, the suggestion. One of the proven ways of ensuring that the country develops internal capacity to to stand on its own in the global trade is to develop the capacity for import in substituting industrialization. This will mean that we develop the capacity to produce and procure our own milk, our own chicken, and other foodstuffs. Generally, we consume what we produce as far as, as particularly possible. What steps have the department taken to ensure that we improve the ability of the country to produce the foodstuffs that we can produce instead of importing these from the other countries. I hope that from you, Minister, will get a, a a simple answer because sometimes you have a, you know, a lot of some, a lot of a paragraph that I really don't understand. I just joined you now, Hope you'll just give
18: Thank us a proper remember, answer. Thank hard. you very much. Thank you before honorable minister one minute
4: one second uh, on, a members, of, on a point on a point of order um house chair okay.
18: point of thank order
4: you. honourable. Member. yes um the honorable member behind the latter speaker can she put on her mask and stop being upset
19: thank you
18: um honorable members in the beginning we were urged all of us to put on our masks and we don't need to be reminded and i request all members to put on their mask. Thank you very much. Honourable Minister, you may proceed.
20: Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chok, for the question. I agree with the Honourable Member that um, uh, a localization program can assist with food security. And indeed, in challenging times like this, it can also help to bring down or moderate food prices. I don't agree with the Honourable Member that these are some simple answers. When one finds a simplistic answer, uh, you simply mislead. Let me give a few examples uh, on this. We looked at price rises over the last three months, uh, from January to March, and global food prices increased by 17.5%, and South African domestic food prices went up by 1.5%. So that would uh, support the idea that we've got to do more things locally. We've got to be able to build our capability How do we do that? So we've got a couple of examples of how we do that. The first thing is we make available funding to small-scale farmers. We've launched now together with Minister DiDiza a special fund that the Industrial Development Corporation is administering to support small-scale farmers. Secondly, we work with companies to build factories, food factories that would otherwise not be here. As an example, we're working with a company to build an edible oil refinery in Richards Bay that would be able to produce 500 million rands worth of South African value uh, as soon as that uh, uh, is completed. Third, we work with large companies to support uh, procurement from smaller companies. For example, Coca-Cola has now agreed to take a certain portion of all the sugar that they buy in the making of Coca-Cola and bring it from small-scale farmers and to buy it locally. Fourth, we work with large retailers to get them to support local farmers. For example, ShopRite, Pick and Pay, Woolworths and Spa have all increased the level of local sugar that they buy and it's close to 100% of normal sugar if you exclude speciality sugars. And finally, we work with industries to see how we can improve uh, output from farms and from factories through competitiveness enhancement programs and measures like that. So there are a few examples. Obviously, in the limited time, I'm not able to deal with all the things that we do. But I've given five examples. I hope that that is helpful to the Honourable Members. He's
5: smiling widely. He wants to cheer. I am sorry, Chair. Point of order. Point of order. We have not said anything. Point of order. Point of order.
18: Point of order.
23: Let's listen to the point of order. By point of order, Chair, I wanted to ask in terms of why are we still importing chickens? The no, chickens is still importing. No, that's
8: not point of order. That's not point of order. Sit down.
18: Honourable Members. Two please points that I want to speak to. If you rise for the point of order, be specific and be clear in terms of what point of order, and you follow the rules and shall be applied. Two, order, honorable members. Honorable members, order, please. Honorable members, uh, in the beginning, we urge all of us to put on our masks. And I would say to the political party whips, if your members don't want to put the mark inside the house, can they be swapped with the members that are going to respect the rules of the House? No, Honorable I'm making a ruling. And it, it goes to everybody. Thank you very much. Honorable members, the last supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Mouda. Honorable Mouda from the virtual platform.
16: Thank you, Honorable House Chair. My question is very much in the line of some of the previous speakers, but with a little different angle. Uh, Would the Honorable Minister agree that in the current environment where global supply chain backlogs are showing no signs of easing and is further driven by conflict-related export disruptions from the Russia-Ukraine war that he mentioned, it is now absolutely essential to eradicate corruption to create a stable state and to stimulate localization to become an even more self-reliant country that is less dependent on imports of food and goods, and by the eradication of corruption, also become a more attractive and competitive exporter of goods. Thank you, Honorable Chair.
18: Honorable Minister.
20: Thank you very much, Honorable Mulder, for your question, your last supplementary question. So I think first, let's start with corruption. Corruption is ultimately theft from the poor. Corruption undermines the economic fiber of a country, damages the GDP and jobs. We calculated in 2017, and we released the figures in the public domain in the middle of 2017, the enormous impact, a negative impact that corruption has on the South African economy. In addition to that, I think, uh, Honorable Mulder, your point about building the capability of the state so that we can localize more is one that is well-made. It's one that this government strongly uh, is pursuing. I'm really happy that both the uh, EFF and the FF Plus have put questions that are essentially in support of government policy on localization. I would urge you to to buy uh, local, to support local farmers, uh, and to expand demand for locally produced goods in these uncertain times across the world, countries are all saying that in the old paradigm, in the old days, the only issue was competitiveness. Now, increasingly, they're about supply security. They're about building resilient economies. And we've got to be able to invest in building uh, resilient economies. So I certainly uh, uh, want to, to support Honorable Mulder's call for greater levels of localization. Thank you very much.
18: Thank you, Honourable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by Honourable Mbuyane from the Chamber. Honourable Mbuyane
2: Chair the the oh, Minister oh, yes, yes, respond yes.
6: first.
18: No no um, we honourable members we are going to question number uh, 255 has been asked by Honourable Mbuiane to the Honourable Minister of Trade and Industry and Competition. Over to Honourable Minister. My apology about the omission.
20: Not a problem. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chairperson. Uh, Honourable Mbuyani, the theft of scrap metal is a major challenge to the country's infrastructure program, damaging passenger rail lines, electricity supply, freight lines, and even healthcare facilities. It is driven, among others, by a massive spike in global demand and global prices that incentivize people to steal copper cable and metal by the destruction destruction of functioning infrastructure. They sell it to middle persons, middle men largely. These products are then exported mainly to the Asian continent and used in their metal factories foundries, steel mills, and so on. The DTIC has taken a number of steps to address this. First, it supported the law enforcement agencies uh, a, a number of years ago through work done to support changes in the legislation to make the criminal penalties tougher, up to 20 years in jail, and to limit the right to bail in particular circumstances. This was subsequently taken through Parliament, it was passed into law, and it was promulgated by the President. And the first few prosecutions have started to take place under this new law. Secondly, the DTIC introduced a price preference system supported by an export tax uh, that was introduced quite recently, that has the effect of dampening the supply of scrap metal for export, because that's where a huge demand exists and that pulls, that's an engine that pulls the destruction of South Africa's infrastructure. Third, because we recognize these two measures are not sufficient, the department has commissioned research at what further measures uh, can be taken and it's currently evaluating a number of proposals, these will be taken through cabinet for consideration and um, Uh, Honourable members will recall the President referred to this challenge in the State of the Nation address in February this year. The proposals made by different stakeholders range from a complete ban on export or or sale of uh, scrap copper cable to control sales in domestic markets, to restrictions on the use of cash for scrap so that an electronic proof of origin is in place, to a licensing regime for scrap metal merchants so these are all measures that are being looked at each of them have advantages each of them have disadvantages these have to be evaluated thought through and uh, once the uh, cabinet has had an opportunity to reflect on it then of course we would be able to come back and indicate which of those elements are appropriate to deal with the problem of theft of scrap metal i thank you
18: thank you Honourable another supplementary question
7: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Minister. In as much as there's legislation, uh, in terms of regulation, regulating uh, the trade uh, second-hand uh, uh, manager, the fact of the matter is that even the law enforcement seemingly we are losing the fight against the scrap metal. Then we, we propose that. What is your view as a minister to expand and deal with this matter? Because the ANC has just proposed that to call upon the government to consider the total ban of the, of, of the scrap metal export. As the department consider what the impact of that total ban on the export of scrap metal and will the industry on the economy be sustainable? Or whether the benefits of the permitting the, the continued export of the scrap metal overweigh the protection of the public infrastructure of government? Thank
20: you. Minister. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Mbuyani. I think it's, uh, the question points to the complexity that we're trying to weigh up. So if we start with the, the research that we've done, we've looked at the international experience. Are there countries that prohibit the export of scrap metal? And the answer is yes, there are some. We've looked at the, uh, the trade regime. Are we in? Do we have trade agreements that would limit us? So we've carefully evaluated that. We've looked at the interest of those who export scrap and, uh, of course, their legal rights to their business. But we've also looked at the enormous damage that scrap metal exports cause uh, to the the economy. Scrap metal is a critical input in the domestic value chain. We need it domestically. We need it for our uh, steel minimals, like the steel minimal in uh, Kabecha. We need it for foundries like the foundries in Gauteng. It's used in the country's infrastructure program. There's a a strong argument to be made for some uh, degree of restriction, which may include uh, some types of uh, scrap metal or copper cable uh, that would be limited for export. We've already put in place uh, late last year an export tax on uh, scrap metal. We've seen a number of um, the players in the sector uh, uh, re-labeling the export of scrap metal sometimes just doing basic uh, smelting of it and so there's this constant battle between the regulatory framework and those who profit from the export when that research is done when it's gone through the system honorable we would have a very explicit and clear answer but the kind of considerations you pointed to are exactly what policymakers have to take into account I hope, uh, Honorable Mbuyani, that uh, goes some way to answering your question while we complete this research and take it through the cabinet process. Thank you very much. Thank
18: you. The second supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Mafiqsen.
19: Thank you very much. So, Minister, just some advice, if I may. Any idea that the ANC gives you, you should ignore it because it will be a bad idea. (laughs) Both Minister Gordon has said that you should scrap. Uh, uh you should ban scrap metal sales Mr Mboyani has said that you should ban uh, scrap metal sales you should go as far away f- as possible from that idea because every economic idea they come up leads to ruin so the question really is minister is that the Honorable Cuthbert posed a written question to you on the 22nd of February asking what quantitative and qualitative data are you using to make these decisions and what is exactly informing this decision around this particular policy. He also asked what discussions are taking place with law enforcement to go after those that are stealing uh, infrastructure and selling it. Uh, And that I do agree with Mr. Imbayani on, that more needs to be done. But there were no details provided uh, in Thank that question, so what data are you using to make this decision? And much. what are the discussions with time the police up. about going Honor after Robinson. those that time are time stealing up. our infrastructure?
8: But, that's another question from the primary question. That's another question from the primary question. It's up to the minister the rules to really answer that. I ah, shut up, Who uh, to sit down, Maude. It's another question from the GA. Can't be correct. Sit down, Maude. No, Maude, out of order. Sit down. Sit down, Maude.
20: Honourable I'm, I'm quite happy to take the question. No. Okay, she's
18: order. doing this for a third no, time. No, 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 Can you no, no. remove order. her from the platform? Order. She's completely out of order. We're well, busy here. Allow me to guide the proceedings. Honorable Malfixen is a point of order. Before you do that, Honorable Members, you must indicate if you are on the virtual platform that you'd like to put a, a point of order. Same applies in the House. You can't do both. Raise your hand for the point of order and engage at the same time. Honourable McPherson, we are point of order, hopefully.
19: Yes, thank you, Chair. I think that you've ruled on this and we appreciate it. And if members are going to continually howl off the platform, please throw them off. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
18: Honourable Minister, you may respond.
20: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honourable Chair. Uh, I'm pleased to advise Honourable McPherson that the data we rely on would include
8: trade data. Honourable
18: Minister, one second. Honourable Judith, your hand is up from the virtual platform. Honourable
8: Shavala. It's fine, it's fine Sheperson. I will abide by your rules uh, and your order in this instance, but I wanted to rule the member out of order, but it's fine, Minister is willing to take the question. Thank you.
18: Thank you very much. Honourable Minister, it's to your discretion whether you answer both questions or
8: one. Thank you
20: very much. Thank you very much. So I, I think uh, I'd start with a data question. Uh, we, we use a range of data. Some of it would be trade data, looking at exports, both in the scrap metal category, and because uh, there has been a, an allegation that there may be evasion, we look also at associated trade categories to be able to see the pattern uh, there. Secondly, we compile data from uh, use state-owned companies, for like example, Transnet make available to us data on the damage caused by scrap metal theft or uh, uh, copper cable theft uh, on their operations. Honorable McPherson would be delighted to know that the Western Cape government has publicly indicated the deep challenges that's caused by theft of uh, copper cable from the metro rail system. And so the damage is enormous. Uh, We'd also take uh, examples of Uh, the output of the mining industry, for example, on copper, we'd look at what is South Africa's copper output. We'd compare that with South Africa's copper exports to be able to see the difference between these two because that would be made up either by misclassification or by uh, 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 scrap copper. Most scrap copper appears to be uh, taken illegally from the country's networks and systems. On the question of law enforcement, We work closely with uh, the law enforcement agencies. Uh, Minister Kele and his team uh, is very seized on this matter. And in fact, we work closely also at the time when uh, a bill was produced to parliament uh, that uh, provided for stiffer sentences and other measures to make it easier for the law enforcement agencies to crack down. However, having said that, it's an enormous challenge for the police to try to monitor every possible a site where copper cable may be taken, right across the country, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So, that Even though the law enforcement agencies have some successes, it's not sufficient to be able to protect the country's infrastructure. And for that reason, we need these new measures. I look forward to Honorable McPherson also supporting us as we take these efforts And Honorable McPherson, of course, would then be delighted to know that he would also be supporting the African National Congress in its position and uh, in that way helping to build South Africa. Thank you very much.
18: That supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Mulder from the Vesha platform. Honorable Mulder.
16: Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Um, Can the Minister tell the House if the introduction of the export duty in the Customs and Excise Act as such has contributed to a decline of illegal export of scrap metal and more effective control of corruption and if whether the officials at the South African trade boards and and corruption there at the trade boards has been eradicated. Thank you, Chair. Honorable
18: Minister.
20: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair. I'm very popular with Honourable Mulder today. So on the question of the measures that have been taken uh, initially, the price preference system and now the export tax, the export tax would still be too early to make a definitive judgment. But in the price preference system, in the first period when it was introduced, essentially what it uh, entails, let me just perhaps explain the price preference system. It requires scrap merchants when they collect scrap to sell it to domestic users, and only when domestic users are not able to take it up at a price discount can they export it. Now, we saw initially a decline in uh, the export of scrap metal in the main category, but we subsequently saw a rise in associated categories, which is evasion. Honorable Mulder, very interestingly, that would be fraudulent misrepresentation by people in the private sector. These um, the persons who fall in the forms uh, uh, around the export uh, some years ago we worked with a private sector player to try to track examples of uh, illegal actions in the export of scrap metal and the police have acted against the individual's concern uh, i think it's it's absolutely clear that we need to have not only a very tight control at uh, ports of uh, of entry to to be able to monitor the effectiveness of the measures we bring into place but also to have tough prosecution of individuals whether they are public officials or whether there are individuals in the private sector this is causing serious and deep damage to the economy and to society sometimes when south africans have no lights no electricity it's not always escoms load shedding in a number of cases it's the damage to public infrastructure and that we must act against. Thank you very much.
21: Thank you.
18: The last question will be asked by Honorable Jagua, Jagu, from the House.
23: It's Chuaku.
18: Chuaku. Engos, you may Engos, yes. No,
23: thank you very much, uh, Chair Minister.
18: And can you just remove the muscle that you are audible oh, enough? Okay, no. And put it back after.
23: <laughs> that one is too uh, you are very excited
18: Oh ask your question, honourable member.
23: Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Minister. You know, uh, who transport, USCOM uh, and Transnet and Telkom, with the recent estimates uh, that the theft of their metal infrastructure is costing them about seven billion uh, on an annual basis. And then I think that, uh, and that these scrap metals, obvious, you're saying that they actually find their way into the export market as we're saying that you have you considered in terms of actually uh, um, actually uh, the the banning of the of the exploitation of those scrap metals and then what we wanted to also know is that um, what have you done any quantification in terms of the impact of such step and would have on those uh, what actually impact would those have on the livelihood that is sustained by the people who are doing the recycling of the metal. And also we we'll probably like to, to say in terms of, you know, you've been running after these people say oh, they are taking all these papers everywhere. Have you went into the source, the people who are buying, which is mostly Thank is you like that, uh, you know, it's actually people Honor,
18: who are, Honor, white capital, is, people uh, are
23: white. So there are people who are buying. So have you gone to those ones or there? Or is this one there? Yeah, that's why I just
18: think the before Jefferson,
17: then before, before Honorable Minister, is this that a point of order? Ms. Jefferson, uh, I think the member is out of order to point at one of our members like that to say that member is white.
13: Honor of classification.
18: Honorable minister, you may respond. respond. Uh,
8: Chair, it was in the direction in the direction of the No, no, no. Honorable members.
18: No, no. Honorable members. Honorable members. May we have order. Honorable members, we can do better than this. May we allow the minister to respond. Uh,
20: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Sob. I think the first uh, part that I would like to say is illegality, theft, Those kind of actions know no color. We have seen people of different colors taking part in this activity. And the law needs to be absolutely firm.
14: Honorable Minister,
18: my apology. You know, honorable member from the second row of the DA and also the same row, the EFF one. If you don't feel like putting the mask, please swap it to your honorable member from outside. Everybody shall put the mask while you are inside. Thank you very much. Proceed,
20: Honourable Minister. Uh, Thank thank you very much, uh, Chairperson. We've done a quantification exercise on on the cost of theft to South Africa. The work has not been completed. But what we've done is we've looked not only at the loss of Transnet and Prasa, we've also looked at the impact that this has on the economy. For example, when mines can't operate because the energy system has been disabled, because of um, uh, theft of uh, copper cable or or, or, um, metal uh, when factories can't operate. And um, we've looked, among others, at things like the, so that would be the gross revenue that is forgone, Uh, the money that would otherwise have been earned that that is foregone. We've looked at the additional cost of security that's been imposed as a result of this because a lot more people now need to monitor this. When you take that into account, and it's a provisional figure, so it's not a figure that we would yet say is our final figure, but our initial estimates is that it could be as high as 46 billion rand, uh, the damage it's caused. Potentially, if we do a, modeling, a further modeling exercise on the, uh, the knock-on effects, it, it's likely to be even higher. On the question of the livelihoods of people who are collecting the scrap metal, there is a legitimate and legal trade, which is to collect real scrap metal that's lying there somewhere and sell it to a local foundry or a local minimal. We want to be able to protect that. Then there's another business a business that goes about uh, digging up pavements and digging out the copper cable and using sophisticated equipment to cut it. People come with buckies late at night, they would have. Uh, five, six vehicles, casing the place, making sure that the police don't come, all those things. It's organized syndicates. We have absolutely no sympathy there. The law must act uh, uh, without any fear, without any favor, and crack those syndicates. And so when it comes to jobs, the jobs of many South Africans are affected. Every time that uh, Metro rail in Cape Town is, uh, is, is unable to operate. Many, many thousands of workers are late for work. Those factories have additional costs. They lose production. So, in fact, it's in the country's interest
21: you, that we act,
20: we act clearly on these things. Thank you very much.
21: Thank you. Honourable
18: Members, question number 244 has been asked by Honourable Heron the, for, to the Minister of Trade Industry, and Industry Competition. Over to you, Minister.
20: Uh, Thank you very much, Honourable Erin, for the question. Uh, The question relates to the confectionery industry. The sweets and confectionery industry is an important industry and part of a key value chain that starts from the growing of sugar right through to the production of all the things we like, chocolates, candies, and so on. The sector, of course, the uh, candy-producing sector has expressed its concern about the cost of raw and refined sugar inputs. The confectionery industry itself has some protection from imported products through tariffs that range from 37% for sugar confectioneries to 20% for chocolates. Most products are either at or close to their WTO bound or maximum rates, with the exception, Hon. Heron, of chewing gum, which has a duty of 25% against a WTO maximum rate of 37%. The department also seeks to open markets for products from the South African confectionery industry. They have access to SADC markets, to the uh, four other countries in the Southern African Customs Union, and to the EU and US markets through our trade facilitation arrangements. And now we're building this African Continental Free Trade Area, which will create an additional market that at its peak would be as big as 1.2 billion. Persons. The industry has access to raw materials currently from Eswatini on a duty free basis and it has quota specific access to the um, EU and UK markets. Uh, this is now the, the raw sugar. In addition, sugar is accessed from different parts of the world including Brazil. Now coming to the key in the question, removing duties from raw sugar honourable, is not government policy given the very large number of farmers and workers who are employed in sugarcane production, KwaZulu-Natal, Pumalanga, other parts of the country, uh, very often uh, people who have a, a precarious uh, livelihood really struggle to put food on the table. So instead of trying to take away the little bit of protection that upstream producers have, we're working with the industry to promote greater local consumption of sugar and confectionery, and to identify measures to improve the diversification and the competitiveness of local sugar producers.
6: Thank you.
18: Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honourable, the first supplementary question will be asked by Honourable Heron from the House. Over to you, Honourable Member. Uh,
6: thank you, House Chair, and thank you, Minister, for the answer. Um, clearly, the balancing act between the from the from from the uh, Sugar farmers through to the mills, and then the converters being the confectionery sectors is an important balancing act from a contribution to our economy, but also the growth of jobs and the job opportunities. Uh, Africa is apparently the, showing the largest growth in consumption of confectionery products in the world. Um, far outstripping the rest rest of the world. And so there's great export opportunities for South Africa and South African jobs to be created in the confectionery sector if we can get this balancing act right. Um, I hope the minister would agree that there's an absurdity in the current situation where iconic South African products like Chappie's Bubblegum, which was launched in South Africa in the 1940s, is now being manufactured in Pakistan or Eswatini because it is more cost effective to manufacture it there and bring it back into South Africa. Um, The Cadbury flake, which as a kid we used to call the flakey, is being manufactured in Egypt and then being re-imported back into South Africa. It's an iconic South African product. So there's something broken in the sugar tariff regime that I think we need to fix. Um, And I hope that the minister will address that in the sugar master plan. Um, Whilst trying to protect the jobs that are in the farming sector as well, we do understand that. But there are jobs to be created and there are jobs that have been exported as these products have been manufactured outside of South Africa when they used to be manufactured here. But we have a more urgent crisis right now, which is the flooding in KZN has caused a shortage of sugar uh, for the confectionery sector. They're just simply not able to access the raw material. So can the minister consider as part of the the flood relief um, regime, a temporary um, tariff relief for importing sugar for the confectionery sector? Thank you, House Chair.
18: Thank you. Honourable minister.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honourable Aaron, for
20: putting, I think, a more balanced view on the challenges on both sides of the equation. Let, Let me start by saying that the opportunities to grow on the African continent is fast. Africa is a young population, rapidly urbanizing, uh, a growing middle class and food consumption on the continent is going up. In addition to that, South Africa's confectionery suppliers have access to a range of sources for raw sugar. They're not confined only to South African sugar. Of course, I would uh, uh, advocate and recommend that they use South African sugar but they're able to bring sugar from Eswatini, which is a very significant sugar producer, free of any duties. So zero duties on uh, sugar coming across the border from Eswatini. In addition to that, they can bring sugar in from other sADC countries. It's uh, regulated by a quota. It's also available to them uh, at uh, prices that they may otherwise not be able to, to afford. So we've got a bit of flexibility in our system. So when, and, and uh, on the question of Chapis bubble gum, uh, the sugar that Chapis uses in producing the bubble gum in Eswatini, that same sugar can be landed in South Africa free of duty. So clearly in that example, the price of sugar is not the fundamental constraint. There may be other constraints, but it's not the price of sugar because a factory in Eswatini will get the sugar at the same price as a factory in South Africa because of the agreement we have in the Southern African Customs Union (SACU). But I think you make a good point that we need to find ways in which we can localize even more of the sweets that South Africa produces. Uh, a recent example has been the measures taken by National Treasury to try to find a careful balance between the sugar levy, the health protection levy, and the need to protect jobs and Minister Godong has tried to find that balance to ensure that South Africa remains a producer of uh, sugar uh, products. We're looking at how to improve the competitiveness. Part of it is at the level of the mills. Mills play quite a key role because they're the collectors of the raw sugar and then they uh, move the sugar on in refined form to other value chains. One element of it is to diversify sugar by considering a biofuel strategy that would use South African-produced sugar, which may then both create greater economies of scale. You can produce more, you can bring the price down, but you'd also have greater scope for imports. We are looking very carefully at the impact of the floods on the sugar industry. As I indicated in an earlier reply, the damage has been estimated to be more than 200 million Rand And KZN represents that Careful Balancing Act. On the one hand, uh, the industry in KZN has been uh, very, very badly affected. Some farms have been absolutely devastated. So we've got to be able to find a way in which we can support them as rapidly as possible as soon as the new sugar crops come on stream. At the same time, we need to be able to ensure access to sugar supplies. So we're looking at it very carefully. Thank you very much. Thank
18: you very much. The second supplementary question will be asked by Honourable Malamachi from, um, from the Chamber. Over to you, Honourable Malamachi.
22: Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Chair. I will take it, um, Honourable Mwazi. Honourable Minister, South Africa and other member states of the South African Development Community, have placed industrial development at the core of the region's integrated development agenda with agro-processing, specifically in the sugar to confectionary value chain being an important area in which industrial development can be pursued. Honorable Minister, are there any collaborative efforts in place to achieve this integration? And how is the production and, and distribution of the sugar confectionary value chain organised in terms of interfirm linkages, governance, and regional logistics? Thank you very much, Honourable Chair.
18: Honourable Minister,
20: thank you very much, uh, Honourable Moatsi, for that question. So within the Southern African region, if I go even beyond Saku, so uh, maybe let me start with Saku, which is the smallest of five countries. Uh, Eswatini is the major supplier of raw sugar, some of which uh, goes to South African mold some of which are milled in Eswatini. Then if we look more widely in Southern Africa, there is a confectionery industry that's growing. This. Users of sugar elsewhere in the continent, Botswana and Namibia, for example, have indicated uh, their desire to be growing the um, production of uh, food products that use sugar. And um, so that's one part of the value chain. Coming to the question on the logistics system, of course, sugar uh, is largely uh, moved uh, globally by ship. Brazil, in fact, there's even an expression for it, which is um, uh, high seas sugar to, to um, uh, distinguish it from sugar that we get from neighboring countries. Uh, and so in, on the African continent, we use a range of means, rail, road, and so on, to be able to move sugar. But the competitive advantage that we will get is if we are able to invest more on sugar logistics. If you go to the port of uh, Durban, you'll see an entire terminal there. It's a sugar terminal, given the importance both of importing and exporting of sugar. So bringing together both the integrated supply chain between uh, all of these elements and other advantages that the African continent has can catapult industrial development on the continent. Consider, for example, Africa is a massive producer of raw cocoa. We export that cocoa to Belgium, to France, to many other parts of the world. It's made into chocolate there and it's exported back to the African continent. But we've got all the elements. We've got the cocoa, we've got the milk, we've got the sugar. It's the organizing these different inputs to be able to produce these sweet uh, products that all of us like. Uh, that constitutes the opportunity for the African continent. Thank you very much.
18: Thank you, Honorable Minister. I think now you have started to look at me, so that I can time you. Thank you so much. The third question will be asked by Honorable McPherson.
19: Thank you, Chair. Um, Minister, with the sugar master plan, there is a lot of move, moving components in the plan, uh, of which uh, confectionery and end use is one part of the plan. Another part of the plan, an important part of the plan, is around diversification of sugar cane and the use of ethanol. Now, for many years this issue has been discussed in the committee, Uh, your predecessor discussed it, you've discussed it, and there seems to be very little movement on the diversification into ethanol, which is a pity because if we were further down the road on that, we would be having greater access to uh, synthetic fuels which may alleviate many motorists and inflation. So by when can we expect a finalisation uh, and a concrete plan on the diversification into ethanol uh, and an announcement in that regard? Thank you very much.
18: Honourable Minister. the minister.
19: Thank you very much for that
20: question, Honourable McPherson. So the, the strategy in the Sugar Master Plan has got two elements of diversification. The first is to try to work with farmers to diversify the crops that they produce. So they're not as uh, reliant on sugar production. Some of it could be nuts, essential oils, there's a range of alternative crops that are being pioneered already by farmers. They tend to be the larger farmers that have the know-how to be able to do that. So we still have to make sure that small scale farmers are not left out in that diversification of crops. The second element is industrial use. So confectionaries are one element, as Honorable Aaron made the point. So is the, the use of sugar in things like beverages, uh, for example, the colas, and sugar that we, we use in our teas. A third element of it is the diversification into synthetic fuels. And a final one is into the production of other products, for example, some uh, bottles like this, uh, honourable members, look in the supermarkets, you'll see some bottles, that have got a little green plant on the side. That means that a portion of that bottle has been uh, produced with renewable resources. The Department of Mineral Resources and Energy is responsible for the biofuel strategy of South Africa. They've gazetted the first set of comments on that. As the DTIC, we support them, we work with them and we encourage them to move with due speed. One of the challenges has been the challenge of the subsidy that would be required in order to be able to support the production of biofuels. When the fuel price is high as it is at the moment, uh, no subsidy is required. When the fuel price drops substantially as it uh, did in early 2020, but even prior to that, then all of those businesses would be unable to operate. And so they've, they've proposed, uh, investors in this area have proposed that government should uh, have a default subsidy arrangement in place. National Treasury has done a little bit of work as has the IDC, the Industrial Development Corporation, and it's because of the costs attached to it that we've had to be fairly circumspect at times when the fiscus has been quite constrained. I'm still encouraging my colleague, um, and my colleagues who work on this in other departments to, um, to see what we can do to get this done as quickly as possible.
16: You, because this Minister. can also
20: increase employment over so and above the what Minister, we have at the, the moment. Thank, thank, thank you, you very you so much.
18: much. The last supplementary question will be asked by Honorable Mulder from the Visual Platform. Honorable Mulder.
16: Thank you, Honourable Chair. I couldn't hear you quite clearly. Um, Would the Honourable Minister agree that the introduction of the so-called sugar tax by the Department of Health in 2018 as a health tax um, and the recent neglect of the Department for Trade, Industry and Competition to implement the correct formula for import tariffs on sugar for 34 weeks in 2021, as it should have, could have negative impact on the confectionery manufacturing industry in South Africa. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Honourable
18: Minister.
20: Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Mulder. I I think I heard most of the question, and to the extent that I've heard it correctly, it talks about the health protection levy and the potential increase uh, of that levy and the impact that that would have on confectioners on industrial users of sugar. If I've understood the question correctly... Uh, With any tax of whatever nature, there's always careful trade-offs. There are winners and losers in them. And economics is one of those um, uh, dismal sciences where there are not too many instances where you have a a complete win-win in these things. And so, on the one hand, we need to protect the health of populations and the World Health Organization has, uh, of course, uh, lobbied uh, that governments need to take steps to try to find public health measures, in the case of diabetes, uh, things like the price of sugar beverages would be cited. On the other hand, in a country like South Africa with the enormous unemployment challenges, with challenges of rural poverty and of the difficulty that small-scale farmers have shift from one uh, type of production to another type of production, we have to take into account how price increases on the final product depresses consumer demand and in that way damages jobs. And this balancing act has to be carefully looked at uh, and so that is what National Treasury has had to balance uh, most recently in looking at the health protection levy. Thank you very much.
18: Thank you very much, Honorable Minister. That brings us to the last question for the day, which is question number 258. has been asked by Honorable Mieni to the Minister of Small business and development, probably for clarities because of time. Uh, Honourable Minister, over to you, ma'am.
11: Thank you
24: so much, uh, Honourable chairperson, and good afternoon to all the members of the House. Uh, to respond to Honourable Mieni and thank you for the question that I have asked. And of course, we do understand the concern that the Honourable Member is raising in relation to the number of our offices uh, as, as related to our agencies, whether we talk about the rural or the townships. As things stand, CFAO on its own has 10 regional offices throughout the country. And of course, we are also sharing offices with CEDA, which has 54 branches again throughout the country and 63 location points. And as I indicated earlier, this is not enough. We've got so many townships, so many rural areas that need access to these services that we render as CIFA and CIDA. And this is why we have taken a cautious decision to say, we're gonna be working with the LED offices in all local municipalities, and we're gonna beef up the capability because the fact that they're LED officers, it doesn't mean that they understand the services that we're offering. We'll therefore be looking for unemployed graduates that are going to come and be placed in those LED offices to assist all the small businesses uh, that are in those areas with the services that we render as CETA and CFA. I want to emphasize here that at the end of this is also introducing a hybrid model as we've seen during the COVID period, that people needed not to go to the offices physically. Others were able to ensure that they participate via the cell phone, whether it's applications and other things. And this is why we're in a process of developing a digital platform that must also give uh, access to those that are a digital literate, whilst you appreciate that we still have lots of digital illiterate. And at the center of that, of course, is the cost of data that people are complaining about, and we're also looking at that. Thank you, Chairperson. I would like to pause there.
18: Thank you very much. Um, the first supplementary question will be asked by Honorable mieni Honorable
9: thank uh, Thanks, uh, Honorable House Chair. Honorable Minister, what are the reasons that some enterprises go through all the CETA application processes successfully? Yet fail to be financed by your entity, SIFA.
2: Thank you, Chair, Chairperson.
24: Honorable Minister. Thank you once more, Chairperson, and thank you, Honorable Member, for that question. As we've been embarking on the roadshows, indeed, this has exposed the limited information or us being able to raise awareness in terms of the services that we are offering. CEDA by its nature and, and mandate, according to the legislation, is responsible for business development support. And as part of doing that, they do contract consultants that develop business plans. Now, no consultant can come up with a business plan that they believe is not bankable. But when you cross the floor going to CIFA, which is responsible for the financing of the business plans, there's lots of things that they have to look at, guided by all the legalities in terms of the provincial authority and the PFMA in ensuring that they undergo due diligence of each and every business plan. And when it comes to that, you'll find out, although we have a great business plan, but when you go directly to the person who's applying for the funding, some of them, they don't meet particular criterion, others, go to an extent of not submitting all the responsible information that is required by CIFA. We have said, now, our responsibility as the department responsible for small business development is to ensure that we give access to all small businesses, access to funding, whilst we facilitate through partnerships access to markets. And at the center of that is enhancing the capability of the constituency that you are responsible for. As we make them understand the business component in terms of the requirements that are, are, are put in place by all those funding institutions, we also have a responsibility not to just decline from the CIDA perspective, from the CIFA perspective, to say you have not met ABCD, but CIFA then, they refer the applicant to CIDA, CIDA that in, in return assists the, the applicant with the relative things that are raised by CIFA. CIFA says, You have applied for this. We are not approving your business plan because of one, two, three. And the person takes the one, two, three to CIDA, and CIDA helps the person with so the one, two, three to come back to CIVA and apply for funding. And this is the resolution that we have taken that this is the only way to enable maximum participation by small businesses in all the supply and value chain that we're talking about. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much,
18: Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question will be asked by Honorable De Filias. Honorable De Filias.
25: Thank you, Minister. So exactly as you explained now, one of the problems with the agencies is that between CEDA and CIFA, people get moved from pillar to post, sent back to CEDA, then just have to go back to CIFA. And as, as something we can all agree on, the merger of these two agencies is a priority to help small business. Now, this has been called for as early as 2015 by the DA. And six years later, last year in 2021, this was actually approved by cabinet for the first time. But In the six years that have lapsed, there's been a lot of uncertainty in key leadership positions in, in Cifa and sida. Which has led to instability and bad service to small business to small businesses. So, Minister, my question is really: Can you commit to a deadline, to a set time and date, when the merger of CifA and CEDA will be accomplished? Thank you.
22: Thank you
24: very much, Honourable Minister. Thank you so much, Chairperson, and to you, Honourable De Villiers for that important question. Indeed, the reason we've started right now, before we undertake all those legislative processes that will lead to the merger of all and SIFA, we said it's important for the two agencies to come up with integrated systems. It's important that they start collaborating. The first thing is to agree on what method must be used by those that are applying for business development support that must also talk to the financial side. That's the first thing. Whilst we are undertaking the processes of the legislative amendment, because the measure means that as these companies are scheduled differently according to the PFMA, there's the need for us to go back to the CEDA Act, which is going to incorporate ZIFA, make amendments in terms of it being able to accommodate the functions that are brought by CIFA, whilst we are doing away with CIFA. We have asked cabinet to give us 20 months uh, which started of course in this month May you can count it I think it ends in 2024 January because of the period that we undertake when we do legislation. We are hopeful uh, that parliament will also have an appreciation of that agency of one agency that must resolve the issues that are faced by small businesses. We are trying to stabilise Within this 20-month period, as you are aware, you've quoted the six months. I mean, the six years and all of that. There was a moratorium that was put in place because we're preparing for the measure. We are lifting the measure. We've appointed an interim board that must make sure that whilst we are busy ensuring that the agencies are developing on the current mandate, but there's the transitional process that's undertaken so that by the time we finalise legislation, things run smoothly. And that is the work that is continuing. We will come back of course during um, the budget vote on the 10th of May and give details and of course go back to the portfolio committee in terms of the project plan as we have committed to cabinet that every six months we'll be going back to the progress so that the certainty in terms of how and what is the work that we are undertaking to ensure that indeed we have one small business development agency. Thank you so much.
18: Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by Hon from the short platform. Honourable Member. Oh, she's in the house, the one that was not putting the mask. You may proceed, Honourable Member.
7: Hmm.
17: Thank you, Chair. Minister, the informal sector is said to contribute about 17% of the country's employment but yet it is the most under supported in the country. The absence of your offices in the townships is evidence of this negligent of township entrepreneurs. What have you done to change the perception that you don't care about township businesses? What steps have you taken to protect township businesses from protection rackets, which endanger the security of township businesses? Mr. Lingapambi, as no lala, see, there is a point of order. Zinga tissue, kufulani parlament, kufele leonina ka, niyega kubango, zungulitele, the masks up. Honourable Members, Order, Honourable Members, Order.
18: One second, Honourable Minister. Honourable Members, we are consuming time and we don't give enough time for the questions. Rule number 84, I uh, I'll request that we familiarise ourselves with the rules so that we don't time to time call you out of order and you will be told if you're out of order. The unbecoming gesture and utterances rule number eighty-four speaks to that.
22: As orders no.
8: out of order. Honorable
18: member, I'll honorable member, I'll eject you.
8: I'll say I'll say, chabalala on the virtual platform. I'm not
18: the chabalala, but I'll continue yes. after you. Thank you very
8: much. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. I've raised my hand. Basically, the honorable member from EFF has asked a question that is not related to the initial question now per the rules it's up to the member to uh, to answer that of the executive but it has nothing related to the primary question that's the point of order thank you
18: thank you honorable shawalala honorable members there are rules in this house and when the chairperson has made a ruling i was just telling you so that i cautious you that if you don't put your mask if you have got unbecoming gesture and utterances rule number 84 applies. If you don't listen, honorable members will follow the due processes and will do what is the correct
24: thing to be done.
18: Honorable Minister, you may
24: proceed. Thank you so much, honorable chairperson. I uh, am I am that was for the second time this year we've gone through the western cape i'm talking about western cape we've been to the eastern cape we're doing it throughout the country this is a program that seeks to make sure that we provide dignity to all the informal, informal businesses but not only to provide dignity to ensure that we give them access towards the supply and the value chain that we are responsible for not only this government, but together with the private sector. The first thing that we, we do is to provide them with equipment in terms of support. I'm sure you know that on a day-to-day basis, the municipalities, again, through the energy offices, they're inundated with requests from informal businesses, wherein they say, we're in the beauty industry, we are in this industry, all the informal, they go and make requests to say, this is the equipment that we, 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 we request, and it is provided. That's part one. We are working with associations that are responsible for informal business support and as we do that because we understand that as the government or as the department alone we really can't hit the the nerve where it matters it requires us to collaborate with other stakeholders because the ecosystem that we're responsible for is very big It doesn't matter if you're going to talk about the transport industry. We have the taxi sector, whether you talk about Uber and any other people, and those are the stakeholders in the department that are not formalized. And ours is to engage with them in terms of saying, how do we complement the work that is done by the different sector departments? Whilst we agree again that those that want to be formalized, we assist them towards that process. Once more, this is a program that is targeting township, and rural enterprises as we do that to top it for those that have grown now from being very small or micro we offer the program in terms of the support that we give from 50 000 to 1 million rents through the township and rural enterprise program and again that's a program that has received much support and many businesses have tapped into it I think what we ought to do on our members now, is to make sure that we all participate in our constituency offices, to make sure that the legislative environment, beginning at local level, does create a conducive environment for the informal traders. Because as you talk about them being chased away forever or their security, that cannot be done by the department. The security requires all of us to say, what is that we want for South Africa? We leave the politicking because we're talking about the contribution towards unemployment and the growing of the economy. And that needs no politicking, because it is a matter that we have all committed to in the National Development Plan. Come 2030, we are going to create 11 million jobs, and the National Development Plan says, out of the 11 million jobs, Nine million must come from small businesses. Now, any responsible lawmaker here is supposed to understand all those clauses in the national children plan and therefore identify his or her needs to say, how are we going to minister to ensure that South Africa can grow Thank and grow.
16: So the last question, supplementary
18: question. Honorable members and honorable ministers thank you very much the time allocated for the questions has expired the outstanding replies shall be forwarded in the hindsight and written form the, the house adjourns
2: please
18: <laughs>